Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is something I'm really excited to bring to you. It's probably the most ambitious solo episode that I've attempted so far on the podcast. It's something I've been working on for quite a long time, and it took me quite a long time to pull it all together and record it all. And what it is, is me having a go at one of the biggest and most interesting mysteries in all of human history, which is what happened to the historical Jesus when he died and what happened immediately afterwards. This is kind of a sequel to my Dating the Gospels episode, but you don't need to have listened to that episode to understand this. I say only that it's a sequel in that the argument I develop here references the dates that I think the Gospels were written at, and kind of depends on those dates in a lot of ways. So if you want to see where I'm getting those numbers from in more detail, you can check that episode out, but you don't have to at all. And more generally, I'm not assuming any prior knowledge on the part of the audience. I'll try and explain everything as I go, and indeed, what I'm trying to do here is not just say what I think happened, although I will do that, I'm trying to show the scale and complexity of the challenge, and even beginning to think about what happened, I'm trying to show what even the process would be of trying to go on this sort of mystery stroke detective story. I'll also say that I obviously have, you know, my own perspective, I'm not religious, but in these episodes I'm not here really to argue against religion as such, and I'm not here certainly to try and convert you either because like I say, I'm not religious, but I have tried to create something that both Christians and non-Christians, believers and atheists alike, could get into and find interesting. You may very well find stuff in here that you disagree with, certainly if you're a literalist and you believe the Bible is inerrant, you will definitely find stuff in here that disagrees with that perspective. But I think regardless of where you're coming at this from, I think there's just something really fascinating about something as dry and boring as a term like source criticism. It sounds boring, but I I really don't think it is. And a, a lot of what I've been doing in these episodes is just trying to show you, like, why I find this so interesting. Obviously, it's a long episode. I don't think it in any sense needs to be listened to all in one sitting. An episode is probably (laughs) the wrong word for this thing I've created here. I think this thing I've created is probably better described as like a short audiobook. Um, It'd probably be about 30,000 words if I wrote it all out. And like I say, this has been months of like research and recording have gone into it. Um, So you can listen to it episodically as like a short 
series, but I decided to leave it all in one because it does... It all tracks one thread. It all follows one narrative as much as I've put into this. So it is quite long. It just seemed right in this case to make, like I said, a short audiobook. Um, future episodes are not going to be this length because I'll die. It will kill me. But, um, like I said, I'm really pleased with this, actually, if that's not too immodest. And I hope you enjoy it and find it interesting, whether you agree with the conclusion I come to at the end of this or not. I hope it'll be an interesting journey. That's more than enough preamble. I just wanted to sort of go over what I've done, created here, given how big it is, um, and sort of what to expect. But let, let's get straight in. Um, just very, very quickly, as always, please do consider um, donating to the show if that's something that you're able to do. So all of this is going out for free without any breaks for commercials or product sponsorship or anything like that. I cover all of the costs associated with this podcast just through listeners sponsoring us. So if you listen to this and enjoy it, and think it's worth, I've been suggesting $2, £2, because they're worth the same thing now, um, an episode, if you think the episode stroke, audiobook stroke, whatever this thing I've made is, is worth a couple of quid or bucks, um, it would be really great to have them, and I do really genuinely appreciate it when uh, people sponsor the show you're making it possible for me to continue doing this which i love doing so thank you so much if you're not able to support financially um sharing or recommending with fr to friends also really really helps so please do share this episode on your own social media um do comment on it i do try and read all the comments I get on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, or, you know, recommend it if you know someone who might be interested. That's all super appreciated too. So, reminder for those things, big thank you for everyone who does them already. Let's go. This is The Resurrection as History. One of the most important myths in human history is the resurrection of Jesus, the central figure, obviously, of Christianity, who, we are told, rose from the dead, returned to his followers, gave them certain commandments, and then ascended bodily into heaven. I don't think I need to belabor just how different human history might have been without that myth. I don't think I need to go through, you know, this is why it's consequential that people came to believe this. And in this episode, 
I'm not interested really to give my take on that. I don't believe it personally as a miracle per se. Here's my question, and this is the question which will occupy us throughout this episode, which will be a long one. Sometimes I do episodes and I think I'm going to be able to keep it fairly contained and it ends up being long. This one's going to be a long one, but I think a fun one. Here's my question. What actually happened there? Now, I can, you know, professional historians will hate the way I asked that question. They'll say, when you get this far back into the ancient world, dealing with discrepant and contradictory and often fragmentary sources, sources that are anonymous, as is the case with a lot of the New Testament, what actually happened is a bit of a sort of naive, positivist way of putting it. We don't know what happened. We'll never know what happened. What we have are various sorts of uh, historical constructions. Not even reconstructions, just constructions. All we can do is create arguments based on the evidence, based on the texts that we have. Blah, 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 blah. And I agree. I agree with that. I agree. I do. Like, you know, I am, you know, a bit of a sort of relativist squish about using texts in these periods as well. No, I get it. I get all of that. But okay, but what actually happened? <laughs> like, because we have enough to give us some really interesting hints, but not probably not enough to really, like, settle it. But, like, I still kind of just want to know. Like, okay, yes, we can't really know. Yes, it's fundamentally irrecoverable to us. Yes, yes, yes. But, but, if we could send a video camera back through a wormhole, and record what was going on in the few days, or few weeks even, or whatever, immediately after Jesus was crucified, which I do think is a historical event, what would that camera record? What would it show us? Now, one answer to that might just be, it's just not a very good question, or it's not the right question. Miracles just aren't the sort of thing that history, secular history, can really have a say on one way or the other. You know, we're not, we don't do a historical analysis of the Greek myths about Zeus or Athena or Hades or anything like that. This just isn't the sort of thing which the historical method can get any traction on. And so, you know, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, is kind of just outside of the parameters of history. And a lot of people who do study it from a historical perspective, whether they themselves are Christian or not, do sort of take that view. Um, and I was listening to a lecture by Mark Goodacre on the resurrection. He said, you know, for the longest time when I taught the historical Jesus, I took that view. And then he said, but I changed my mind. And the reason I changed my mind is because, yes, miracles really aren't the domain of history. But what does seem pretty clear is that very soon after Jesus' death, his followers became convinced that he had been resurrected. 
and this became a important, if not central, belief of the early Jesus movement. And well, okay, well that, that is well within the domain of history. What do particular individuals or groups believe, and why? That's totally within the realm of history. And if you're going to write a history of the early Jesus movement, it actually not only can, it, I think it probably has to grapple with what happened, what, 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 what's, what went on here. And there's two slightly separate questions there you can tease apart. One is the what actually happened bit, which I think actually, you know, is somewhat within the realm of history. And then the other is what did people believe happened? And those might not be the same thing. And I'll argue they're not the same thing. But even if we confine ourselves to the latter, what did people believe? That's probably going to involve at least speculation as to why they believed it. And once we start asking that question, we will sort of be getting into this what would happen if you sent a video camera back in time type question. And I just think that's like so fascinating and this is such an interesting detective story to work through um all sorts of fascinating clues and you've really got to be careful in how you go through them but i do think there's a there there you know it's not like the birth narratives so you know the jesus in a manger, in a stable, visited by three wise men, bearing gifts and miraculous signs, and born of a virgin, all that stuff, right? That, I would pretty confidently say, is entirely a later invention. I was actually having a conversation with a fundamentalist Christian about this a, f- a few months ago. He was, um, you know, this sort of street preaching, proselytizing, that word, that people do in, like, town centres, he was doing that. And to be fair, he approached me. I didn't go up and, like, challenge him or anything. Um, But I was just milling around, and he sort of came up and asked me what I knew about Jesus. And I was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And this was just after I'd done my Dating the Gospels episode. And his his sort of lead-in was he wanted to tell me that the Gospels were reliable eyewitness accounts and that we could sort of take the story of Jesus, including the miraculous bits, as historical fact based on them. And so I just kind of went into podcast mode and I was like, because I was like prepped to have that conversation, <laughs> you know? And, um, and it was very, to be fair to this guy, very nice, very amicable conversation. I wasn't trying to, like, put him down or anything. And we just sort of went through it all. And I just, like I say, I was in podcast mode. He was sort of like, well, what about this particular verse? You know, how do you, what do you make of that? How do you explain that? I was like, okay, this would sort of be my historical interpretation of it. And we got onto the birth narratives, which is where I was going with this. And he was making some point, essentially a sort of tautological point of sort of taking one passage and saying, well, if this is true, how do you explain whatever? I think it was, well, why would Joseph have gone back to Mary unless he had been visited by an angel? Surely, you know, if you'd have thought your wife was cheating or whatever, which is presumably 
what he thought, you know, you wouldn't have gone back to her otherwise. Um, and there's kind of two ways you can go there. You can say, well, maybe he just forgave her. And, you know, people do that all the time, right? Um, but I don't think that's what happened there. I think that whole story, I think there probably was a Mary and Joseph. I think those were real people. Um, certainly Mary. Um, but no, the, the, and so I just sort of went through it and I said, well, you know, in terms of our historical sources for the birth narratives, they're nowhere in our earliest source, which is Paul. But okay, Paul doesn't give us a lot of biographic detail about Jesus, so he might have just left that bit out. Although, if Paul knew about something like the virgin birth, he might have mentioned it. But anyway, it's not in Mark, which is our earliest gospel. Mark just sort of starts in medias res. It starts with John the Baptist and Jesus being baptised by him and so on. There's no sort of, and this is what he was doing when he was in high school, sort of stuff to Mark. And then the next two Gospels, which are Matthew and Luke, which we know are dependent on Mark, they used Mark as a source, they add in birth narratives. And I say add in because they follow the story of Mark quite closely. But then they have this extended introduction that Mark doesn't. And so I can't prove this, but ultimately sort of what's more likely is it more likely that these birth narratives are historically true, but our earliest sources just don't mention them at all? Seems like a bit of a big detail to leave out if you know there was a virgin birth and you just don't put that in your story, right? Or is it more likely that Matthew and Luke are reading Mark and they're sort of you know, like, they like Mark, but they're sort of thinking, this, this kind of needs a better introduction. And so they add in an introduction. And we can add some sort of contextual evidence to kind of buttress that speculation. So the idea of a virgin birth or divine parentage of some kind, is not at all in the ancient world an unusual thing to add into the biography of a historically important person. So I think the example I gave at the time was, you know, a myth developed, maybe even within his lifetime, around Alexander the Great, that he was the child of Zeus, who had come and had relations with his mother in the form of a snake. And quite how that one was supposed to work, I'll leave to your imagination. But, you know, many, 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 many figures. You know, being like half god, half person is not particularly wild in the ancient world. And with all of them, you can sort of see a pattern where this is a story that sort of gets added in by propagandists or you know, later biographers or so on. So it's a sort of, the, the idea that you'd have a story about an important person and think, well, this, this needs, this needs a bit of a, a thing to get going. And from the, so from the very beginning, you know, this is an important person who has some sort of divine status or relationship with the gods. Um, add to that, that the two birth narratives we have are both really different from each other and contradict each other in all sorts of places. And 
contain details that we basically know aren't historically true. So never even mind the virgin birth bet. Um, if you think about the story of the census, that they had to go to Bethlehem because that's where their ancestor David was from, and that's, the, that's not how Roman censuses worked, right? There may have been some sort of Roman census at that time. Some people have argued there was, some people have argued there wasn't, not important here. But if there was, that isn't how it would have worked. Like, think about the logistics of that, of, like, having every single person in the empire have to return to a place where their ancestors lived ten generations ago, and which ancestor? Which great-great-great-great-great-grandparents? So, like, that, I think we can pretty confidently say, didn't happen historically. Um, the, the, the Massacre of the Innocents, when King Herod is, like, scared that there's going to be some new king, and so he has all the baby boys killed, and um, Mary and Jesus and Joseph have to flee to Egypt. Um, not to quite the same degree of certainty, but you almost certainly didn't happen. It's not recorded in any of our other sources, and we do have sources of what was going on in Jewish history at this point um, that are sort of not connected to you know, Josephus and so on, right? Now, I guess in fairness, killing a bunch of children is not totally out of character for Herod. Um, our sources do record he had a bit of a sort of mad tyrant phase at the end, but they don't record this. And they probably would have done, because our sources don't like Herod. Um, and so if he had done something seemingly deranged like this, they probably would have done. So, very, very unlikely that that's historical. And so, when you look at the chronology, these stories come in later in the timeline. They're a later iteration of the story. The story when it was first told, or the first time we have documentation of it being told, didn't have them. They get added in later. The, the, they're added in later, and they have these sort of miraculous signs that this is going to be a great man. That's completely, you know, within the context of, like, how these sorts of biographies get put together in the ancient world, and the sources really contradict each other, and they say things that really cannot possibly be true historically, it's not absolute proof positive, it's not like a scientific proof, but I think when you add all that together, we don't have to sort of, or it's not even useful to sort of ask these questions about, well, why did Joseph return to Mary, um, none of it happened. And again, I'm sort of using this what actually happened sort of language here, but hey. None of, you know, the, 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 this was all just sort of made up. Maybe just invented whole cloth by the authors of the later Gospels. Maybe they're sort of picking up on something they heard. But for the first generation, I would say, first 40 years, really, after Jesus' death, this wasn't part of the story. Um, and actually, this guy I was talking to, you know, I wasn't, like, meaning to be, like, mean about his faith, but he was actually a little bit shocked by that. He was like, so it's all just made up? And I was like, well, yeah, basically. I mean, this bit is. And sort of, I think biblical literalists have a very, like, either-or approach to scripture, because he was sort of like, but then, if this is made up, how do I have confidence that, like, 
the rest of the Bible isn't made up. Um, and I think that's just, like, the wrong way of looking at it, right? Because how do I have confidence could mean two things. It could mean, how do I, if I read something in, you know, later on in the Jesus story, how can I know without doing any sort of analysis 100% for sure that this absolutely happened? Well, you can't. The same with, like, any other text, right? There's, there's nothing that you can just take. And, yep, this is true, you know? Um, but I, I think they think it's a bit thicker than that. I think they think it's like, if one part is false, it all must be false. And, and that's not right either, right? There's a lot of perfectly good history in the Bible, like the, the so-called Deuteronomic, I might have said that wrong, histories in the Old Testament, where it's sort of like the first temple period. Um, a lot of that checks out. And that, like, the particular details of kings and foreign policy and so on that we have in those books matches up with the accounts that we get in Assyrian or Egyptian history, matches up with the archaeology. Um, so, you know, that bit we can, I think, to a reasonable degree of certainty, say, yeah, maybe, maybe not every detail's right, but yeah, this is a perfectly decent bit of history that we can use as a historical source. Um, New Testament, too, like a lot of the sort of, I guess, geopolitical details that you can sort of find in the New Testament, like who was governor of a particular province at a particular time, or who was the emperor, or like you know, that sort of stuff, usually checks out in the New Testament. Not Absolutely, there's a couple of fobs here and there, but usually, you know, there's, there's plenty of good historical facts to be found in the New Testament and the Old. You know, so the fact that some bits have been sort of layered on, and yes, invented more or less whole cloth probably, doesn't mean that there's, there's no historical truth. Um, so anyway, I didn't mean to just dump on this random guy. I mean, like I said, very... Perfectly pleasant conversation, went on for about two hours. Not sure either of us were expecting that, but anyway. Um, so matching that to, to the resurrection then. Now, you know, my first impulse, I've never been religious. My first guess with the resurrection story, before I got into, like, studying this and, like, you know, reading a whole load about it and interviewing people who study it as history, my first guess would be the resurrection is very um, similar to the analysis I just did of the birth stories, in that people are following this guy, Jesus, he gets executed, Ooh, didn't expect that to happen, but the movement sort of keeps going, and over the generations this story develops that, you know, he miraculously returned, right? That would be my first guess. I'm pretty confident in saying now that I would be getting that wrong, that it's not that. Um, the reason I say that is we have five, well, more than five, because it'll appear in later documents as well, but in our earliest texts, um, we have five different accounts of the resurrection. It's in Paul. It's in Mark, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, and it's in John. And as we'll see when we look at the version in Paul, it's, I think we can say this, people became convinced of this very early on. 
It's not like the birth narratives. The birth narratives, I think, by the time, you know, Luke and Matthew, I dated those texts to about 80. So if Jesus was born around the year zero, people argue if it was zero or three or yeah, but around that time. We're talking 80, 90 years after the fact, right? There's no one around to contradict you, basically. Um, it's very easy to, you can start just making up and elaborating and so on. People came to believe in the resurrection very, very early on. So, that's like a disanalogy to the, an, or a sort of hint of, of where my reasoning's going to go with this, to the analysis I did of the birth narratives. Here's an analogy, though. Like I said, let's say we have five sources, Paul and the four Gospels, which each have resurrection stories. They have different resurrection stories. The framework on which I hung my birth narrative analysis is going to be the same, which is the chronology in which those sources were written and the dating of those sources. So in a lot of, in some ways, this is like a sequel to my Dating the Gospels episode, because I think unless you can put a bit of a marker down for what order the sources came in and what dates they were, I don't think you're really going to solve this. I mean, you're not going to solve it definitively any which way, but I think if you just had those five resurrection stories, and you don't know when they were written, or what order, you're kind of left doing this thing of like, well, one says this, and the other says this, and how, you, you know what I mean? I think to sort of try and get to the what actually happened here question, and I'm going to give you an answer to that, and it's probably an answer you haven't heard before, you have to know the ordering. And like, it's not the totality of my analysis for the birth stories, but it's like my foundation stone, right? If it, if it was actually the case that Matthew was written first, and it was written within a decade after Jesus' death, then really the rest of my analysis there kind of falls apart a little bit, right? Same thing's going to be true here. I'm going to go through the sources in chronological order. I'm just going to assume the chronology if you want to know where I got that chronology from. I have a whole three-hour episode where I argue for that chronology. I'm not saying that chronology is right to an absolute certainty. It may very well not be. Um, I'm saying that's like our best guess, and I can appeal to authority in the case of um, the chronology and say my best guess it isn't really even mine. It's, this is a good, like, centre of gravity of sort of what maybe like the average historical scholar would come to here. With the resurrection, ultimately we don't know, and that's where I'll land on this. Here's what I think we can say about the resurrection. I think something happened, but we don't really know what. That's actually, um, this um, preacher I was talking to asked me, he said, well, you don't believe in the birth narratives, do you believe in the resurrection? I said, well, probably not in the same sense you do, but I think something happened but I think we're not sure what. That's all I think we can really say there. But I'm going to do this detective story, and you should take 
all of what I'm about to say were just mountainous piles of salt, right? Like, there were people who were far more qualified than me to do this work. I'm not really trying to say that the answer I'm going to come to is definitive. I'm just like, I think it's an interesting little detective hunt to go on. Um, and I'm going to give you how I've pieced through it. And in this case, the final answer I'm going to come to probably isn't what most... Well, I don't know. It, it, it isn't what a lot of historical scholars come to. Some might, but... And so I'm not asking you to listen along and go, well, whatever Toby decided here, he's, you know, finally cracked the code of studying this thing people have been looking at for 2,000 years and rigorously analysing historically for 200. Like, no, no, this is... I think it's a really interesting intellectual puzzle, and I'm just going to walk you through how... I've been thinking about this one for a couple of months now, and I've finally got a story in my head that makes sense to me. Um... But it's more just fun to go through the detective story. Like, doing the detective work is, in many ways, more fun than finding out it was Colonel Mustard. That's the answer, by the way. It was Colonel Mustard who killed Jesus. So I'll just give that away uh, at the outset. Um, as always, when I do ancient world stuff, I'm going to stick really close to my primary sources. Um, the five resurrection accounts I mentioned. Um, and I'm going to give you certain interpretations of them, interpretations in the plural, because you know, why is the text saying a particular thing? There'll often be two or three or four different takes on why it's saying that. Almost none of these interpretations are unique to me. Um, I'll try and cite where I'm getting them from as I go. Um, and when I do have an idea that's genuinely my own harebrained stuff, I'll flag it for you. So that one add an extra mountain of salt to. Um, but yeah, that's that's what we're going to do here. Um, what what happened? We're sending a camera back in time. What 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 actually went down here? So let's start, and let's just start with our first source again. Everything I'm gonna, all my analysis is kind of scaffolded on having the dating of these sources. Our first source is Paul. Remember, the first texts we have are the seven authentic letters of Paul, and these predate the Gospels by around 20 years to the first Gospel. So, dating for Paul varies a bit, but it's probably around 50, sometime in the 50s, right? about 20 years after Jesus' death. And unless you know this passage, or you know, you're someone who reads the Bible a lot, or you've gotten into this sort of historical analysis type stuff that I've gotten into, this is probably going to sound pretty different to the story that you have in your head about what went down here. But it is our earliest source. So, this is from 1 Corinthians 15, start of the chapter, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Quote, and I'll just read you the whole thing and then I'll break it down. Quote, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, so it was I, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whenever it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. End quote. And that takes us to 1511. Okay, that's different, isn't it? So, for if you're sort of familiar with how this story is normally told, and sort of the version you have in your head is probably sort of just like an amalgam of the four gospel sources, there's probably two big omissions that are going to strike you as weird here. Where are the women, and where's the ascension? So, where are the women? Um, most of the time, when we think about the resurrection, we think about the, the first sort of part of the story being the women, um, the two Marys, the mother and Mary Magdalene, and maybe one more Mary, or maybe someone else, visiting the tomb, and, depending on the version, either finding nobody in the tomb, or finding the risen Jesus coming out of the tomb. Right? Paul's story doesn't have women in it. Now, this has sort of puzzled people for a while. Now, one answer might be, Paul is just a sexist, would not be uncommon for the ancient world, and he's sort of written the women out of the story. That could be the case. Because it's, it's a chronological story, right, that he's giving you that he died, was buried, raised, then he appeared to Cephas, and then so on, and then this, and then that, and then that, right? Um, so in this story, Cephas is the first. Cephas is just Peter, by the way. Um, one of the slightly annoying things about New Testament sources is everyone apparently has two names, because reasons. Um, and at one point, Paul makes clear that these two people are the same person. But Peter is the first to see the risen Jesus, according to this story. Well, according to John, it's Mary Magdalene, right? So, it wouldn't at all be unusual, or that, that unexpected, for a male author in the ancient world to read something, or, you know, have something passed on to him that has women playing a prominent role, and just sort of edit them out. Except... Except, Paul isn't reading John and editing them out. John was probably written 70 years after Paul, right? So, are the later Gospels editing women in? And why would they do that? Because the women play a really prominent role in all of the Gospel accounts. 
And this just sort of isn't something male authors make up. Male authors tend to diminish female agency in the stories. Um, not add it in. Why would that happen? So that's sort of interesting. And the question of, like, Paul being so virulently sexist that he would hear a story with women in it and then just edit them out could, could, could very easily be true. But it's not uniform. Like, Paul does acknowledge. He references, in passing, a female apostle, the Apostle Junior, at one point. Um, never mentions her again, but he's putting her on the same status as himself in recognising her as an apostle, which is kind of interesting. And indeed with Paul, Paul does say some sexist stuff, but the stuff that you know, women shall not teach or have authority over me, the, the sort of real misogyny isn't actually Paul, it's the Deuteropauline or Pseudo-Pauline letters, which is to say those letters in the New Testament that claim authorship by Paul, but most historians think were written by someone else pretending to be him much later on. So Paul sometimes gets a bad rap for sexism, and he certainly wasn't a modern liberal feminist or anything, on the basis of stuff that other people wrote in his name. So the evidence that, that Paul would just not be able to stand the sight of women in the story and just edit it out, certainly possible, but it's mixed, right? Uh, another sort of issue that gets, uh, a potential explanation that gets made here, is maybe this is like sort of legal evidence, and women in those days wouldn't have been able to give evidence in court, so it isn't a complete or exhaustive list. It's, it's a list of people whose testimony he could confidently appeal to. Maybe. Maybe, but that's, that's just pure speculation. Um, the next one is, what's our timeline here? Because you've got Cephas and the Twelve, you've got 500 people, you've got James, you've got the Apostles, and then you've got Paul. What's the time frame? between Jesus' death and Paul seeing Jesus, which is what he's claiming here. The conventional answer, and this is just sort of a guess, is a few years. Maybe like three years after Jesus' death. But in the story you have in your head about the resurrection, Jesus' appearances are quite time-limited, aren't they? It's like 40, he comes back, there's like, a period where he's with the apostles, and then he ascends into heaven, and that's sort of the beginning and end of the apostolic succession, right? Paul says he's the last, he's the final person to have seen Jesus. So he does have like an end point on it, but when's this supposed to have happened? Like, here's the question. Is Paul aware of the ascension? Because he doesn't seem to be, does he? Because remember, there's a whole preamble to Paul. We get it most fleshed out in the book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. But the same th he, he says the same things. He says it here, I persecuted the church. So we are, to, are we to believe that Paul's period of persecution was happening through the, you know, in the period in which Jesus was making appearances to people, then he had his conversion experience, and then Jesus ascended? 
Or is Paul's seeing the risen Jesus after the ascension? Jesus has sort of come back down again. Right? I'll come back to both of those questions later on. I think we're not going to be able to answer them until we go through all of our other sources. But those are the two things that really sort of weird people out. Yeah, weird people out about this story. What about the women? What about the ascension? I'm going to put it to you then that those are the wrong questions to ask, because this is our earliest source. And so when we're asking, we're sort of asking the wrong question, right? To say, why is Paul not aware of stuff that occurs in later sources? You want to start with the earliest, analyze it on its own terms, you know, not bring in stuff from the later sources. Start with this. Let's get a picture of what Paul was trying to claim here. Then let's move on to our next source, which is Mark. So let's just have a quick look at this. It's only 11 lines on its own terms. And again, this is our first source. So now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, let's just zero in on the word remind. This is something that he's already told them, right? If we're dating this letter, let's just put a number on it and say 50, right? That means that we can date this account to even earlier than that, right? This account of the resurrection must go back to at least when he first had contact with the Corinthian church, right? And it's also, the next one, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It's not just that this goes back to something he said when he first met these people. This is what he also received. And a lot of, I think you could probably pick this up without even Paul overtly telling us. This isn't something Paul's just invented, right? It has a certain rhythm and flow to it. And it just really, it it looks like something that Paul is passing on. Someone else has told him this, and now he's telling you, the Corinthians, it, or reminding you of it. Um, And that puts it even earlier, right? And as of first importance is pretty key here as well. This isn't some random detail. This is the first thing he was told. This is the first thing he's telling the Corinthians, and now he's reminding them of it. Right? This is, so, that means it goes back really early, right? This goes back, presumably, to Paul's conversion experience and his first meeting with the church in Jerusalem, which we'll get to. So, this is what I mean when I say there's a there there, right? At the very least, I think what you can sort of dig out of this, the sort of preamble to this, is, like I said, people came to believe very early on that that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And we have a first-hand account of what 
the very first people believed about it. This, this account might go all the way back to, like, three years after Jesus' death, something like that. So this is really a, a portal into the first people who, who came to believe this. Now, the fact that they believed it doesn't make it true. The fact that I think we have a pretty good guess that what Paul's giving us here is a very, very early narrative, list, story, whatever, that's developed, doesn't mean that then we have to go, oh, well, the resurrection really happened. I'm not making that claim. Just that I think we can confidently say on the basis of this it wasn't a much later invention like the birth narratives. Here's a slightly separate question. Did people become really convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead? Or did they sort of make it up, right? Now, prima facie, I think both of those are pretty plausible. Um, it's quite plausible that a movement whose leader has just died might well immediately just start going, well, you know, you know, Peter, you say Jesus was Lord, but he died, and Peter's like, oh yeah, well, he just, I saw him yesterday. That could happen, right? Certainly. Um, but also, you know, people do, you know, genuinely come to believe in these things. Um, if you think about cults today, um, I think there's no doubt that, and this is a slightly disparaging comparison, but say, the people who all committed suicide in the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, this is the, the, the one where we get the drinking the Kool-Aid phrase from. It wasn't actually Kool-Aid, it was a mixture of phenobarbital and vodka, but anyway. Um, they did so on the expectation of some sort of salvation. Um, if I remember the details right, it was that there was sort of like a spaceship that was going to come past and pick them up if they all committed suicide at a certain point. Um, they believed in the reality of that, right? So I don't think it's like too crazy for history to say that people were really convinced. Um, do we have any evidence sort of to shade it either way? Is it, is it that people just started telling tales early? Or is it that they became really convinced by it? I'm gonna... And this is a pivot in the story, right? Because that will sort of change our analysis of what actually happened if we could send a camera back in time. You know, because we could just kind of close the book on this now and said, they made it up. Yes, they made it up early, but they still just made it up. And they were just self-consciously sort of lying, right? I'm going to say it's not, though. And my evidence for that is Paul himself. Paul tells us that he was initially hostile to this Jesus movement. Not only hostile, but he was actively involved in persecuting it. We have Paul telling us that in his own words. And then one day, suddenly, he's not. Not only that, he's then going to spend the rest of his life propagating it. Now, you might think, well, yeah, but maybe he was doing so for cynical reasons, maybe he had something to gain by this sort of switching sides, as it were. And I'm not, like, 
I'm not against that read, you know, for itself, right? Like, there's no part of my worldview which has me committed to believe that the the earliest Christians or the people reporting this to us were honest actors. Like, I'm certainly not someone who's, like, looking at the Bible trying to prove that it's true. Um, it just doesn't line up with what we know about Paul. Um, I think Paul really just... He had to have believed this. He's going to spend the rest of his life preaching this. A incredible personal danger. Paul's going to get, like, beaten up and whipped and, like, put in prison for long periods of time and deported on account of this. And one of the biggest controversies Paul has with his churches is that he refuses to take money from them. So it's not something that he's profiting from. And you, that, that, this is um, what a lot of Dale Martin's books, Life with Salvation, is about. Wait, why would his churches be mad at him that he's not taking their money? Um, surely it would go the other way around. Um, essentially, what seems to have happened is that Paul was sort of economically self-sufficient. Um, there's a guess, it's only a guess, that he was some sort of tent maker. But he did some sort of skilled manual labour, and he would support himself doing that. And then, like, in his free time, as it were, he'd go round doing all this church founding and managing and whatever, right? And because upper-class people have always, throughout human history, had a bit of a snobbery about manual labour, what our sort of guess here is, is maybe some of the more affluent members of his churches. Paul's churches, by the way, we think are somewhat economically mixed. There's a mixture of, like, not like elite elites, not like Roman senators, but comparatively affluent people and comparatively less affluent people. Some of the comparatively affluent people were sort of a bit uncomfortable with the fact that their leader was someone much lower down on the socioeconomic strata than themselves, doing this grubby sort of manual labour. And they were sort of like a bit like, hey, let me just pay your way, you know, so you don't have to do that, yeah, you know. Um, degrading stuff anymore. And Paul was resolutely no. Now, he has his own sort of personal theological reasons for that, but it's sort of interesting if we're thinking, is Paul a charlatan or not? That the biggest fight he seemed to have with people is that he wouldn't take their money. And Paul will. This isn't anywhere in the Bible. It's obviously not in Paul, but it's not in Acts either. So we don't know for sure, but Paul will apparently, according to tradition, and very plausibly, be executed for this, eventually. Um, we don't know that for sure, we don't know any of this for sure, but that's how the story ends. And so if you put all that together, I think you just sort of have to ask, well, what is more likely here? That you've got this guy who's persecuting this movement, which he sees as, like, false teaching, something which he is telling us is a direct resurrection experience. Something happens, and he spends the rest of his life travelling all over, getting beaten up, getting put in prison for this, and eventually getting killed for this, all the while refusing to make money from it. What's more likely? That he saw this sort of opportunity for if not money, maybe power and influence, maybe. I think the simplest explanation is that something really changed his mind. 
<coughs> okay, so I think even just off this little passage, we've got two things: not a certainty, but as best guess. The belief in the resurrection came really early. And, at least for some people, it was really sincere. So, with that in mind, let's then have a look at the rest of this resurrection account. And I'll just call your attention to a few things that have sort of had scholars scratching their heads for hundreds of years. Um, the list of appearances. So, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, just a note there, it's kind of like a formula, isn't it? It's like three bullet points. Died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. And the way it is in a certain formula, and the language has a certain poetry to it, again, I think is sort of a complementary evidence to the direct evidence Paul gives us. That this is sort of like a, a, a recitation. You can almost imagine this being said liturgically, right? That is to say, like, as part of, like, a service. Which is, I think, again, it, it, it's not something Paul's inventing on the fly. Here's a question, though. Died, buried, raised. Does Paul think there's an empty tomb? Because if he does, he doesn't say it overtly. I'll just call your attention to that fact. It could be either way, right? And we're going to come back to that question. Does Paul think there's an empty tomb? You'd assume he does, but that's just because you've got the gospel story in your head. Paul doesn't say that there's an empty tomb. His account doesn't contain that. Then there's the appearances. First to Cephas, Peter, then the Twelve. So a couple of interesting things about that. Is Peter not one of the Twelve? And also, here's a question. Just think about this for a minute. What's wrong with the Twelve? Well, because if we're talking the twelve disciples that are in the gospel accounts, it's not twelve at this point, is it? It's eleven. Because Judas presumably isn't a part of this anymore. Now, what a lot of people have sort of thought here is that the twelve is kind of like a known group. It's like a thing. You know, I am a member of the twelve, right? Like a bit like, you know, in that the superhero parody, The Boys, there's The Seven, right? Like it's a thing, like it's The Twelve. Um, and this may have had theological importance in that a lot of people have speculated that the reason there was twelve apostles was they will be the leaders of the twelve tribes of an apocalyptically reconstructed Israel. Right? So, and also, is the Twelve a contemporary group with Paul? Again, we're only 20 years out of the death of Jesus. Most of the disciples will still be alive. And he's saying the Twelve. Although, I think by this point, apparently some have got martyred, but there's the Twelve. 
what's up with Judas? That's a sort of open question. Luke Acts tries to sort of solve this problem in that it says the it does make a, a sort of an allowance that it's the 11 disciples after Jesus dies, but then the book of Acts tries to sort of say, oh, and then what happened is they appointed a new member to be the, the new 12th disciple, right? Now, whether or not that actually happened historically, I have no idea. But I think whether or not it happened, what you kind of see there is the author of Luke Acts recognising that little discrepancy and coming up with an account of why it's not a discrepancy. Why is there a group called the Twelve if one of them betrayed Jesus and then hung himself afterwards? Well, it's because, you know, it, it did go down to 11, but then they bumped it back up again to 12. Although, even accepting Luke's account as historical, there's still a discrepancy because Jesus appeared to the twelve, but according to Acts, the appointing of this new member didn't occur until after the ascension. So it would only have been, according to Luke Acts, it would only have been eleven who saw Jesus. According to Paul, it's twelve, and maybe thirteen. If we count Peter, is he separate to the Twelve? Not entirely clear. So that's, that's an issue people have raised with that. Um, and then it keeps going, which is something the Gospel accounts don't do right, as we'll see. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. When did this happen? <laughs> right? We don't get this in any of the Gospels. And Paul tries to sort of back it up a little bit here by saying, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means dead. Um, because to Paul, you know, if you die in the body of Christ, then you're not really dead. You're going to be woken back up again when the apocalypse happens, right? Um, and this is so weird, because a lot of people have said, well, this is something he's got from somewhere. He's sort of letting us know, hey, a lot of these people are still around, you want to go talk to them. And that's kind of like a credibility-enhancing move, isn't it? All saying, look, it's not just my word, you have all of these other 500 or like 400 who are left or whatever, people's word. Um, go ask them. God knows what the historical origin of, of that is, right? Although I do sometimes wonder if we're sort of falling for the same trick as Paul's audience, in that he's saying to his audience, look, it's not just my word. You know, should we take Paul at his word here? God knows. Continuing. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Well, again, this is different to our conventional account again, right? Now, here's the thing. What happened with James? This is, there's a few Jameses here. This isn't the James, one of the early martyrs, who gets killed by Herod Agrippa in the book of Acts. This is James, Jesus' brother. Now, from the letters of Paul, it seems like James was a big deal in early Christianity. Like, yeah, the first generation after Jesus' death. And that he was one of the two leaders 
it was Peter and James who were in charge of the church in Jerusalem, and Paul who was the one going out to the Gentiles and making converts among non-Jews. At least that's how Paul presents it. But then what happens to James? Because he, he's not really anywhere in the Gospels, and where he is, he's kind of like diminished as someone who like didn't really believe in it. So was it that he didn't really believe in it? And then sort of came to be convinced because Jesus appeared to him after his death? Or were we sort of reading that the wrong way round? Is it like he was a big deal in the Jesus story, but then he gets written out in the later gospel accounts? And why does that happen? We can only speculate, but here's an interesting bit of evidence. Is it just me, or are there kind of like two stories here? There's Peter, the Twelve, and then these 500 people. And then there's James and the Apostles. So this is an interpretation people have come up with. Is it that there's kind of like two churches in Jerusalem, or like two different sort of organizations here, with James as the head of one and Peter as the head of the other? And that like the twelve are under Peter and the Apostles are under James? We don't know, we can't know, it's pure speculation. That's a sort of answer people have come up with. Maybe? Here's another one. Apostles isn't synonymous with disciples. The twelve, like I've said, seem to be their own unique, distinct group. Were these the same people who um, were the twelve followers of Jesus during his life? Maybe, maybe some of them were the same. Apparently at least one wasn't. You know, Judas was replaced. Maybe, maybe not. But Apostle isn't. Apostle is someone who has seen the resurrected Jesus and has been directly commissioned by him to spread the good news, to spread the Evangelium, right? So Paul is an Apostle, or at least says he's an Apostle and claims he's an Apostle. But he's not a disciple, he's not one of the twelve. Then, so, you know, what's going on with all of that? Who knows, right? Then, last of all, so like I said, it seems like we've got two lists of, like, maybe two different groups within the churches, speculatively, right? And then tacked on at the end is Paul. And even in Paul's own telling of the story, this seems to be a bit of a discontinuity, right? You have this certain ordering to the two lists. And then, last of all, as of one untimely born, is Paul. And Paul's the last. Now here's a question. If you'd have asked Peter and James, would they have given you this same list? Speculatively, I'm going to say, no. They might have given you the same list up until this point, but would they have included Paul on it? I think that's open for debate. At the very least, it's not how Paul's story comes to be written up. 
It's not how he comes to be remembered. Because, okay, so when it comes to Paul, we have two sources of evidence. We have the seven letters that Paul actually wrote. And then we have Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles is written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke. I'm, I'm, spec- I'm guessing, but I think probably around the same time. In my chronology, I'm putting Luke you know, somewhere between 80 and 90, something like that. Acts of the Apostles, a bit later. Acts of the Apostles is like the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It just picks up the story immediately where the Gospel left it and tells you what happened to Jesus' followers after, after his death. And a lot of this story is about Paul. Now, the thing is, a lot of the details of Paul's story, as recorded in Acts of the Apostles, maybe 50, 60 years, hang on, no, 40, 40 years or so, after Paul's writing his letters, aren't the same as what we get from Paul's letters themselves, our our primary and secondary sources diverge here. Um, So, in Acts, Paul's called Saul, same person again, everyone has to have two names in this. Um, This is Acts 9. This is how Acts tells the story. Quote, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters of the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Um, Interjection. So Paul at this point is still a persecutor of the church. Um, He was there at the, you know, the supposed first martyr, the stoning of Stephen, and we're nine books into Acts, so I'm not going to attempt, like, an exact dating, but where are we in the story? Presumably at least a few years? You know, we've already had a whole bunch of stuff happen. A few years at least after Jesus' death, right? Way after the ascension, right? Um, So it would be weird for the author to put a resurrection appearance in here, and they don't. This is how they tell it, picking directly up again. Quote, Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will do what you are told to do. The men who were travelling with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Aeneas, and the Lord said to him, also Aeneas, um, they said to him, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, and behold, he is praying. And he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias, or whatever, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But he answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, and how much evil he has done your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest 
to bind on the, to bind all who pull your name. But the Lord said, Go, for he is an instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So he departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you by the road, which he came and sent me, that you might regain your sight and be filled by the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptised, and he was strengthened. End quote. And then the story goes on, you know, Saul proclaims Jesus in the synagogues, um, he goes to um, Jerusalem, and it's told how in Damascus he, quote, preached boldly in the name of Jesus, and he goes to Jerusalem, went out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, and blah, 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 um, and meets the disciples, and they're initially scared of him, they're like, oh, well, isn't this the persecuting guy, but then they realize he's, he's, you know, genuine or whatever. All right, so I kind of <laughs> curtailed the last bit. Um, that's the story that's kind of like um, come to us about Paul, where it's very much in the sort of vision category of things, the light from heaven and the voice. That, that's quite a sort of common way of presenting a, a religious vision. But it's not the resurrected Jesus, which is what Paul claimed in the passage that we just read from him. Um, here's how Paul describes it in his own words. And I'm not going to point out every difference, but just note how different it is. This is Galatians 1.11. So a different letter of Paul. Paul telling the same story. Quote, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it by any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Jerusalem, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism among, beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for fifteen days. But I saw none of the apostles other than James the Lord's brother, what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. That, that's a verse in the Bible. Um, Galatians 1.20, and it appears in parenthesis in my texts. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said 
he used to persecutors and is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And because of a revelation set before them, although privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running and not had run in vain. Okay, I'll pause that there. Um, And he says he sort of, you know, agreed with Peter and James that they were going to preach to the circumcised, i.e. the Jews, and he was going to preach to the uncircumcised. Right. Then a little bit later on, 2.11, he recalls that he fell out with them. He says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? End quote. So, there's a bunch of differences there, right? The big one is that in the later telling, in Acts, it's a vision. In Paul, it is the resurrected Jesus. There's none of the detail about Paul losing his sight or anything like that. And apparently Paul says, I didn't consult with anybody. And it was three years before I, I went and met with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts, it seems much more like that happened more quickly. Um, and then you can sort of see here how we date Paul, right? It was three years and then 14 years. And if you assume what, that his conversion experience was maybe three years after the death of Jesus, you sort of get a date of about 50. If Jesus died in 30, if you sort of add up all the dates, 50 for when he started, you know, going out and doing all the stuff for which he's known. And then to bring it right back to this question of would, would, Peter, Cephas, and James have recognised Paul as an apostle, as a witness to the living, the living and risen Jesus? Well, this bit where Paul recounts an argument between the two. Now, in Acts, there's no argument. In Acts, they, they settle this very amicably and come up with, like, an agreement. But Paul himself is like, yeah, and I told that bastard to his face that he was a hypocrite. Like, the way Paul's writing it, he's clearly, like, still mad, isn't he? Like, even Barnabas got taken in by Barnabas. It's the ones you trust, isn't it? Um, and so, if you try and put yourselves... What, what would Peter and James have said about this? Would they have considered him an apostle? Maybe not. <laughs> right? Another big difference is that, by Paul's account, he's saying, I got this all directly from Jesus. Now, we can query that, because it does seem like he has picked up some stuff from meeting with Peter and James. But he really seems to be doing it not through their authority, 
but through the authority conferred on him by whatever happened to him. And it's that whatever happened to him, right? We have quite a detailed, fleshed-out account in Acts. But again, Acts was written a long time later, and it's really questionable, I think, what that author's sources were for Paul's life. He doesn't seem familiar with the letters that we have. So I think when you, you have someone in their own words versus an account much, much later, you have to start with their own words, right? What did happen to Paul? He seems, like I said, to have been genuinely convinced by it. Here's another little bit of evidence and another discrepancy with Acts, because Acts said he was preaching boldly and, you know, confidently and disputing with the, the Hellenes, right? Um, fascinating bit of first-hand testimony, 1 Corinthians 2. Here's how Paul describes it when he first met the Corinthians. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. End quote. What's happened to Paul? This is our only eyewitness to this. What's happened to him? He has been a persecutor of this movement, probably for a few years. He thinks he's seen a resurre the resurrected dead leader, or ex-leader of this movement. He claims to have seen them, not a vision, not a voice. And when he's preaching it in his own words with trembling and much fear, what's, what, what has this guy seen? And we think we sort of know the answer, right? If we're taking Paul at his word, and he, Paul has seen the same thing that Peter and James saw. It's that the body has got up and walked out the tomb, right? It's, it's come back to life. That's not what Paul says. And what Paul says, we've only just been asking questions up till now, right? What Paul says is different, and it's even weirder. Because you may well ask, okay, but so, Paul, this is of first importance, right? And you're claiming to have seen this with your own eyes. What did you see? And actually, it's even more than that. And, like, the curiosity of the members of Paul's churches would be even more aroused. Um, because for Paul, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to all of us. When Jesus comes back at the end of the world, the dead, or at least the dead who were part of his churches, will be raised in the same manner in which Jesus was raised. And all of us will be transformed, which should key you up that something weird is happening, right? And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits 
This is uh, 1 Corinthians 15.23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Firstfruits is an agricultural metaphor. It's like you're ready to bring in the harvest, but before you do, you harvest a bit of it, and you have a big feast with that, and then you go out and you bring the rest in. And so it's like... We're all going, the dead are going to be raised, and all of us are going to be transformed. And Christ is like the sampling of that almost, right? And so it's not just like a sense of curiosity of like, Paul, what are you claiming to have seen here? It's apparently the same thing's going to happen to the rest of us. And so you might, it might be natural, would it not, to have a bit of curiosity about like what exactly this looks like? Paul does have an answer for us. Continuing on with 1 Corinthians, this is 15.35. But some will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? So, as we've been saying, this seems like a reasonable question at this juncture, right? Christ has been raised from the dead. You have seen this with your own eyes, Paul. Again, just sort of accepting Paul at his word here. And the same thing's going to happen to all of us. Christ is the first fruits. He's sort of the, the Costco sample of the general resurrection here. Okay, so how are the dead raised, and with what type of body do they come? Paul anticipates the question in the text. And his answer is my favourite bit of the entire New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15.36, you fool. In the Bible, look it up. He anticipates a question from the audience, and then calls you an idiot for asking it. Gotta love Paul. What kind of body do they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, there is the glory of the heavenly and the glory of the earthly. There is one glory of the sun, there is another glory of the moon, another of the stars, for each star differs from star to star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. I'm just going to skip ahead a bit to 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, and I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. End quote. What is Paul talking about here? First thing. What kind of body do they come? This is all physical. 
there's not. We have like, this like natural supernatural divide as like two just like different categories of, of stuff. There's really not in the ancient world. All of this occurs within the natural world, but the natural world contains a bunch of stuff in it that might seem pretty weird to us, right? So it's a body. It's a physical body that we're getting back. But it doesn't have the same type of flesh as we do. He says, you know, you can sort of see this, right? Insects have one type of flesh. And you can see someone, like, cutting up meat or whatever. Like, when you cut up a fish, it looks different to when you cut up a cow, right? And he's saying, yeah. So when we come back, like, we'll have that different type of flesh. And then he goes on about, like, there's earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. So here's one idea people have come up with. Does Paul kind of think we're going to end up being like stars in the sky or something? Is that sort of what he thinks? Is the resurrected body something he's seen in the heavens? That's an interpretation. If that is the interpretation, what is going on with the bit about flesh? Going forward, he says there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so a lot of people take this and think, okay, what came before it was a bit weird, but I kind of don't need to worry. Spiritual body means spirit. It means like the soul leaves the body and sort of goes up to heaven, right? That's our modern understanding. Um, the, the, and if you've listened to my Dale Martin interviews, um, we covered this a lot there. Um, and I'm getting this from him. Spiritual body, the, the word spiritual there, the Greek is pneumatikos, or of pneuma. Pneuma gets translated as, well, it gets translated as spirit here. It gets translated a whole load of different ways in the New Testament. Um, pneuma is a stuff. It is most literally translated as breath, wind, breathing, something like that. And that's, that's actually what the word means today. Pneumatic is something powered by air, right? Uh, pneumonia, pneumonia, right, same root, is a respiratory disorder, right? Um, and so Dale Martin's sort of attempt at reconstructing this is imagine a physical body made of air, light, and electricity. Like, what, what would that look like, right? And, you know, you don't know, right? And then let's go back a bit. I'll give you another one. We get this, the, the sort of seed and the flower, right? This, this is, like, always interpreted metaphorically, right? Um... But Paul himself is telling us not to interpret it metaphorically. What if we interpret literally? Something is going to grow out of your body, which is in some sense contiguous with your body. Like in modern terms, you might say it has the same DNA or something. But is completely physically distinct from it. 
almost like another metaphor you might use is almost like a, a butterfly comes out of the chrysalis after having been a, a, a caterpillar. And if we take that metaphor, let's go back to another question. Does Paul think there's an empty tomb? If he does, he doesn't tell us that. But taking the seed and the flower literally, you can imagine there's an answer where there's not, where something grows out of your body. But like, when a flower grows out of the seed, the, still, the seed still stays there. When a butterfly comes out of the chrysalis, there's kind of like a husk left behind. Are we going to sort of grow out of the ground that way? Should we be thinking about this in like a sort of John Carpenter-like body horror type sense? Is that what he's on about? Would there be like a husk of our old bodies left behind when these new bodies with a new physical appearance and a new type of flesh grow out of them? Now, I'm not saying any of those interpretations are right, or that we, this is definitely it. What I'm saying is I think we tend to have a, we tend to have a tendency, and that's great phrasing, we have a tendency to spiritualise and harmonise passages like this. Which is to say, whatever Paul's saying here, we try and then make sense of it as coherent with the other resurrection accounts that we have. And we try to make it something abstract and big picture and about like us going up to heaven or something. Um, and I'm not sure either of those are particularly useful tendencies for trying to make sense of this as history. As, uh, just at a first pass, never even mind what happened, what is Paul trying to communicate to us here, right? Again, this is earlier than the Gospel accounts, so it doesn't necessarily make sense to try and harmonise with them. And it might be some sort of spiritual truth, it might be some sort of metaphor, but Paul also might be talking quite literally here, and he seems to be telling us that he is. But okay. Well, that was our first set of sources, Paul. And so far we have only questions, right? And we're however long into this now, and all I've given you is, well, this doesn't make any sense, what's going on here? So this is the first act of, like, our murder mystery, right? I said this is like a detective story. This is when we've come in, there's a bloody candlestick, and it's a locked room, and, like, all these strange details and different characters... We don't, we are any clue, right? We're going to try and solve this mystery. I'll give you my answer as we get towards the end. But you're not going to know, you know, in order to know what a good answer is, you have to know what are the sorts of questions that that answer would be resolving. And I think this is a much more complicated. There's, mu there's so many more moving parts in this than there are in the, the birth narrative story that I went through. Birth narrative has a lot of details, but I think the answer's quite simple. It's a later invention. It's not so simple here, is it? We're right back at the, you know, we're really tracing this historically right back to the beginning of the Jesus story, but what we have is really confusing. So let's move this forward to our next source historically. What I've read you from Paul all comes from the 50s, 
don't have like an exact date, but sometime in the 50s, about 20-some years after Jesus' death. Next up is Mark. Mark, and again, for like why I'm dating the way, you can take my word for it, or like why I'm dating the way I'm dating is all in my Dating the Gospels episode where I go for that in way depth. Um, Mark, I think, is written around the year 70. So 20 years after Paul, 40 years after Jesus' death. It's not an eyewitness, and his name probably isn't Mark. This is when we get the story you're probably a bit more familiar with, or some of it, I should say. So, let's just start, I'm not going to do all of it, but with the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. This is Mark 1443. I'm actually, I don't have like computerized notes, I'm actually working out of a physical Bible here, so if you hear me rustling around, that's the little thin pages of it. Um... All of this, by the way, is an ESV Bible, which no one really uses, but that's the one I have. So if you look at look this up in your own Bibles, you'll probably find slightly different wording, slightly different translations, so on and so forth. And I'm trying to keep the Greek to a minimum, because so much of New Testament interpretation comes down to like, oh, you see this word here? We're translating it as X. A better translation is Y, where X and Y are like not only different, but like complete antonyms. So I'm trying to not make this one, like, every single word I'm, like, going through it like that. I'll just do it with, with some of the big ones, like Penuma and so on, where, like, really, like, you, you kind of want to know that. Um, most of the analysis I'm doing here is based on chronology and narrative. So anyway, Betrayal and Arrest of Jesus, 1443. And immediately, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with a crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him, and at once he said, Rabbi, and kissed him, and laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood nearby drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture, capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So, Couple of quick points on that. One of the twelve. So again, this idea of like the twelve is like like a club almost, like being the, the the twelve is a thing. And we can just note the discrepancy I saw before, in that presumably after Jesus' death, Judas is no longer one of the twelve, right? There's this little incident um where someone there's, there's some sort of violence happens. We get it in slightly different versions. Um, and people think this is historical. Why? Because it's kind of not something you'd make up, right? The fact that there was some sort of violent confrontation around his arrest doesn't mesh with the overall image that they want to project as Jesus as peaceful and innocent. So it's kind of like you'd say it's against interest. May or may not be, I don't know. Um, 
But people do seem to think that little incident was historical. Um, and Jesus kind of mouths off at them, but they, you know, eventually goes with them. And then the one line I really want to call attention to here, it's one sentence, very short sentence, Mark fourteen fifty, and they all left him and fled. So the disciples all flee. One sentence, but I think that's going to come back again and again and again. And then we get this weird story about the naked man, which is the only bit of Mark that doesn't appear in the other Gospels. Mark gets copied word for word over into Matthew and Luke, together with additions and some other material, and we think at least one other source that we no longer have access to. Neither of them think this bit about the young man running away naked was worth it. <laughs> Apparently, both Matthew and Luke were like, okay, this bit we can cut. I'm going to skip through a little, but just give you the outline of the story. Jesus goes before the council. Um, this may be the Sanhedrin. Um, I've always been a bit unclear about that. Say it's the Sanhedrin. Um, and they interrogate him and, you know, say he's a blasphemer. Peter denies Jesus. So, you know, this story about Peter will deny Jesus three times before the, the cock crows, which I've no idea if this is historical or not. But, it, again, it sort of reinforces this idea of the disciples fleeing. They see him getting arrested, and they're like, oh, yeah, we'd better get out of town. And for whatever reason, Peter's still around, and they're like, hey, we, aren't you one of the, the friends of this guy we just arrested? You're one of that, that lot, aren't you? And Peter's like, no, no, not me, Gov. Um, and, you know... It's interesting, isn't it? Because Peter's apparently the leader of the church. I mean, according to tradition, he's the first pope. So how does he feel about this getting written up in this way? Is Peter still alive at this point? Possibly. Probably not, right? Um, but it, it may be historical, because again, it's, is this the sort of thing you'd make up? So probably, maybe it's historical, and then the Jesus foretelling it is made up to sort of make it seem like it was all, all part of the plan. Anyway, Peter denies Jesus. Fairly short little story. Denies him three times. Um, and hence, it fulfills the prophecy of Jesus saying to him, before the cock crows twice, he will deny me three times. And Peter breaks down and weeps. Jesus is delivered to Pilate. In Mark, this is a fairly brief thing. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus doesn't answer him. That's it. Um, you get this story where Pilate lets the crowd choose between Jesus and a man called Barabbas, and they choose Barabbas to be released. Again, is this historical? It's, we don't have any other extra-biblical sources to say that this is something that happened, but, you know, maybe. Call, call that one 50-50. Jesus is mocked by... The soldiers saying, you know, oh, you're the king of the Jews. He's led away to be crucified. Um, they mock him some more. And um, he dies on the cross. Right? All quite short. It's about a page of Mark. I've just briefly summarized. Let me come back in again. Let's start at 1537. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the centurion, who stood behind him, saw in this way he breathed his last, and he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Uh, end quote. Um, you all know the story about John Wayne? When he plays this, there's a Jesus movie where John Wayne plays this centurion, and he says it in a really wooden way. He says, Ah, oh, surely this man, this, this man was the Son of God. And the director says, Can you try and say it with a bit more awe? And John Wayne goes, Oh, this man was the son of God. God know if it's true or not, that's, that's something. Um, there's another interpretation of this line. That, okay, one is that this centurion has recognised, oh my God, there was something special about this guy, but they're nowhere near the temple, so like how he would have seen the torn in two. Um, another one is that apparently Jesus dies quite fast, and he dies and it's kind of like sarcastic from the centurion. It's like, well, clearly he was the son of God, right? It's like he's, he's mocking him some more. I don't know. Anyway, moving on to 1540. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the mother of... And, were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. So this is interesting. I said when we first um, looked at Paul, where are the women? Okay, first gospel, first account of this. Here are the women, right? So it's interesting for a few senses. One, it's a little scrap if you want to, like, make the argument about their being women playing a prominent role in the Jesus movement. Um, here's what I want to call your attention to, though, is, you know, a couple of chapters before, all the disciples fled. So I think what's going on here is leaving aside the question of whether these bunch of Marys were actually there or not. There's a reason the author is calling this to our attention, in that I think the author is sensitive to questions of sourcing, and we'll see this again and again and again in the Gospel accounts. Because, remember, the disciples have all left and fled. And throughout the story, I think it's pretty broadly hinted at that we're getting our sources you know, we're getting our information from the disciples. Maybe not directly, and I go into this in a load more detail in the Gospels episode, but like, after Jesus has died, they tell the stories, they get either remembered or written down, and then this author uses that information to put together a narrative of Jesus' life. And at various points, for instance, the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, they really go to pains to say, and this disciple was here to witness it, right? But now there aren't any disciples, because they fled, and so how do we know what happened here, right? I think, so even though they're not doing sort of source analysis in the modern sense, the authors here are aware that that question can be raised, and they sort of want to cover themselves. On that, on that front. And incidentally, my guess would be 
That the disciples fled is historically true. That actually happened and was sort of widely known at the time, right? Because otherwise, why say it, right? Why include that if not? And so having the women there, and he says looking on from a distance, that's kind of solving a, a, a it's solving a structural problem for the author, which is the author always wants to show in this text how he knows what he knows. He wants to show his sources. And you don't have citations or whatever in the ancient world. So the women are included here. Or one of the functions of the women in this story, they might well have other functions, but one of the functions is to let us know where he's getting that information from. Maybe not directly. Maybe he's got it from someone who got it from someone who got it from the women. He's not, he, he, they never say, oh, and I talked to Mary and this is what she said. But how could anybody have known, right? That's the question here. Jesus is, uh, this is uh, 1542, so just following on directly from that. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and after summoning the centurion, asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Few things here that are worthy of our attention. Again, rather than ask what's true, I think it's just interesting or useful or whatever to start with sort of what work is this story doing for the author? Um, so, first of all, it, is by, it should by no means be taken for granted that someone executed, crucified as a criminal, um, the Greek word here is leistoi, sometimes gets translated as bandit, brigand, just really... Someone maybe traitor, someone sort of living outside of the rule of law, essentially. Um, it's by no means to be taken for granted that they would get a burial, right? A lot of times, the Romans would just leave the body on the cross to rot as a warning to others, and that sort of public display of mutilated remains. Um, is by no means confined to the ancient world, right? This goes all the way through to the early modern period, where they'll cut off a traitor's head and put it on a pike and leave it outside the city gates so that everyone else, you know, gets the message, don't, don't try anything, right? That might have happened. It's not as if everyone in the ancient world would have got, like, you know, a tomb cut in the rock would be a lot of labour, presumably, would be quite expensive. And so you'd assume, especially with criminals, 
may, you know, a, a lot of them would probably have just been, like, chucked in a common grave somewhere, you know, sort of literally disposed of like garbage, right? Um, so the stories kind of covering, again, irrespective of the historicity of it, um, I think there could sort of be a question when people hear the story that's going to come about the empty tomb, is I think a lot of people in the ancient world might ask, well, how does he even have a tomb in the first place if he was executed as a leistoi, right? And so there's a structural reason for this story, which is to sort of explain how he was in the tomb in the first place, right? And I think the next bit where it says, and the Marys saw him put in the tomb, I think that is, again, the author doing the same thing. They're trying to show their sources, right? They're trying to be like, and, you know, they, he was put in the tomb, it was closed and sealed, and the, the Mary... So we kind of have, like, a chain of evidence where it's like, at each point that there's a consequential development in the story, I'm showing you where I got it from. Because the author is aware that for 90% of the narrative, it can just be assumed that this is coming from one or more of the disciples, as, as I do believe is historic, that the disciples produced accounts of Jesus' life, um, that then did, in some unreconstructable way got filtered through to the Gospels. The author's aware that, that that can't be the case there, because the disciples fled, and it's known that the disciples fled. Um, the resurrection. So this is uh, Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. There is a lot of debate about who these Marys were. One of them was Mary Magdalene. Is James and Salome the mother of Jesus? Because Jesus did have a brother called James. This is one of the, the perpetual frustrations of studying the ancient world, is that, like, everybody had the same name. Like, because people in this time didn't have last names. Like, what was Paul's last name? Sort of a trick question, he didn't have one. Most people wouldn't have had one. You'd have to be like an aristocrat to have like a family name. And so not only did people not have last names, they had like three names in total, of which they all shared. Um, half, half of all the inscriptions on tombs and graves in this period in Judea for women, half of them are called either Mary or Salome. And so this just makes it a nightmare to try and work out which particular Mary is being discussed at any one time. Another one is, through this period of the, the history of Judea, it's in a really complicated relationship with Rome, where who rules and in what relationship, and there's kings and tetrarchs and direct bits of rule. And there's a complicated dynasty that runs through this period all of whom are called Herod. And once you wrap your head around who are the different Herods, you sort of despair again, because you're like, well, how on earth am I going to explain this to anyone else? Anyway, I say all that to say, there is a lot on who all these Marys are, and it's different between the different Gospels, and I am not going to spend time on that, because there are some things for which the human mind simply isn't equipped. Okay. So we're still with the women, right? And presumably, if this is historical, big if, right? 
this is who we're getting it from. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Okay, pause. See the place where they laid him is kind of interesting. And I'm going to, to explain that. I'm going to have to explain a bit about how tombs worked in this time and period. So what you might be imagining here, and how it's almost always portrayed in movies or whatever, is it's like a cave, and it's like quite spacious, and there's like maybe a slab in the middle of the cave where Jesus' body is, and then there's like, like we've heard, a rock over the entrance. Um, and there, there is a site which, in Jerusalem, which people, you know, sort of pilgrimage centre and whatever, that is claimed to be the, the tomb of Jesus, and it does look a bit like that. That is a site that was identified as that much, much, much later, and very unlikely that it is like the actual historical tomb. Right? Um, it's underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I want to say. Don't actually, that was off the top of my head, don't quote me on that. But, okay, that wasn't how they were. They were carved in rock, as it was said, but it wouldn't be like one individual, one per person. Like, think about how many there'd be, right? What they were is imagine a passage into the rock, and there's like a central area, like a tomb foyer, almost, where you can go and stand. But then it's almost like a catacomb, in that coming off that, there were a number of narrow passages cut, each one just big enough to, like, hold an embalmed body, right? And they, it may well be that, like, there's a family tomb, and again, you'd probably have to be medium affluent to afford one of these, where, like, you know, your parents are in there, and when you die, you'll go in there, right? And so, you see, Jesus, don't be alarmed. He's left already. Um, see the place where they laid him. So what this guy, this young man dressed in white, often interpreted as an angel, in the, in the later Gospels is an angel, or angels, but the, the text we have in Mark just says young man dressed in white, is saying is they've come in, it's dark, that presumably, because again, this isn't Jesus' tomb, right? It's this Joseph of Arimathea character. Presumably there'll be members of Joseph of Arimathea's family in there as well, right? He's saying is, look, you put him in that slot, and he's not in that slot anymore. So I think what's happening here is the author is sensitive to the possibility or the allegation that what's happened here is just a mix-up. Because if you go into one of these tombs, which again is a bit more like a catacomb than a tomb, and there's lots of different bodies in there, 
you know, it's pretty hard to tell who's who, right? If it's dark and some of them have been in a state of decomposition or whatever. The author seems to really want to make clear they saw him go in one place and then someone's being like, no, look, you put him there and he's not there anymore. He's, the author's kind of like with just that one line, like shielding himself from the allegation that this is all just a mix-up. And maybe it was. Here's an interpretation, which I don't think we can just dismiss out of hand. Maybe it just was a mix-up. Maybe they went in, Jesus wasn't where they expected him to be, saw that he'd gone in a sort of state of, we're in a traumatic period, in a state of heightened religious expectation, kind of panicked. Went to the disciples, the disciples, although they fled at this point, but anyway, let's gloss over that one. And everyone was just kind of like, oh, and, and, and then it just kind of like spiralled from there. Maybe, right? Here's another interpretation. This one is purely my own, although someone must have thought of this. Like I said, a lot of the time, you know, the co- people crucified as criminals wouldn't get a nice burial like this. You'd be left on the cross to rot or just like hoiked in a pit. Maybe this Joseph of Arimathea guy comes. He's like, hey, can I get the body? Yeah, yeah, sure, you can have the body. A few hours later, you know, the two Roman guards are talking to each other. Oh, I mate, you know, what what you do with that Jesus geezer? Oh, yeah, just hugged him in the pit, mate. Oh, yeah, shoot, didn't we say we were going to give him to that Joseph dude? Oh, well, you feel like getting in that pit and hoiking him out? Ah, oh, nah, mate, fuck that, fuck that. Just tell him we dropped him off at the tomb and let's go get a bevy. Uh, for some reason, my Roman guards sound like how Americans did British accents in the 60s. Not entirely sure why that is. I think it's appropriate. Anyway, I am British. Why am I doing a parody British accent when I'm British? Scholars will be puzzling over that for decades. Um, and then, you know, the women show up and expect to see him there, and he's not. Maybe, maybe something like that. Maybe there is just a mix-up here. Right? Um, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm saying that, that you, 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 I think we're adverse to explanations like that because it seems it doesn't seem fitting that something on which world history turned could really just be a misunderstanding like that. But there's no reason it couldn't have been, right? So anyway, see the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and you will see him just as he told you. And they went and fled from the true tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized him, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Ooh, what's coming next? The book ends. That's the last sentence of the Gospel of Mark. Now, in my Bible, it goes on for a bit, but even in the text itself, it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. What this means is, even, you know, conservative Christians and, you know, recognise that the rest of Mark is a later edition. The earliest manuscripts we have end with the women being afraid and not telling anyone. And more than that, the bit that comes afterwards is in a completely different writing style to, to the bit that comes before. 
So overwhelmingly, people think Mark just ends here. Which is kind of weird, right? That's a weird way to end a book. You're kind of left with, like, well, what happened next? Now, there are all sorts of explanations for that. Um, one would be there was a longer ending to Mark, and it got lost. This isn't that implausible on its own terms, right? Especially if you think about, like, a book back then would have been a scroll, and this would have been the last part of the scroll. So maybe that last part just got, like, got water damaged and fell off, or, like, rats ate it or something. And then the, the version that got damaged happened to be the one that was circulating. You know, in a world pre-internet, pre-printing press, whatever. That, that's actually not a crazy thought, right? That there was more and we just don't have it. Another, and this has caught more traction recently, is Mark did mean to end it that way, and it's sort of meant to, ha to, to end on a cliffhanger. And when people do a sort of thematic analysis of Mark, there's a couple of points in that's favour. One is the end seems to thematically direct you back towards the beginning, so you read it again. Another is the structure of Mark suddenly makes a lot more sense. So Mark kind of pivots around Jesus revealing that he's the Messiah. And in the first half, people are all asking, who's this dude? Who's this dude? What's going on with him? And it gets answered in the middle. And then the second half is it all being like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's the Messiah? And it, it, both times people sort of getting it wrong. And there's, there's 16 chapters in Mark, and it's bang in the middle on 8, where you get that. And if you add the longer ending in, it kind of messes up that structure, that really nice sort of up-and-down movement to Mark. Um, so maybe, he, maybe, maybe Mark is sort of like a dark, dramatic genius, in that he's sort of left us with something that's intentionally opaque and unsettling. That's an interpretation people have. Another interpretation is that um, it's, it's sort of unfinished, a bit like an unfinished symphony. Not because it got lost or eaten or whatever, but the author just sort of didn't know how to end it. You know, you have, like, unfinished symphonies, and it's not because the author died in the middle of it. They, they, they just didn't finish it. That's a possibility. One question to ask when you think about why does it end? the way it ends, is what's the relationship between the story we're getting here and the story we got in Paul? Because let's just say Paul has his own particular distinctive spin on this, but at a minimum we can say that Paul's sort of list of who saw Jesus when and where, well actually Paul doesn't tell us when and where they saw, but who saw Jesus, is something that was widely known in the early church. So is the author of Mark assuming that knowledge on our part, and this is almost like a prequel? Like, he, he feels safe to stop here because he knows that we know that Jesus will appear to the disciples, presumably in Galilee, not Jerusalem. Based on the text we have, that's a detail that will change throughout the Gospels. 
but is this almost like a prequel that the leads up to that? Is sort of that what we're supposed to think? It's all speculative. I mean, one counterpoint, I like the Mark being a dark dramatic genius, and he has this, like, it ends in the middle of the scene, and it, that's a compelling read, right? Um, one challenge to that is if that's how we're supposed to read the text, it's only really modern people who have read it that way. Early readers of the text kind of found it unsatisfying. And we know they found it unsatisfying because they tacked on this later bit. And we can consider that, but I'm trying to do the sources in order. So first Paul, then Mark. We can consider the long ending to Mark as a source, but it's a much, much, much lighter source. But so, anyway, the, the idea that this is he's trying to do something theologically clever, or like narratively clever by ending it that way, that's a compelling read. And, and I think in terms of theme and plot and the structure of the book, people have come up with really compelling reasons why that's the case. But, you know, if you're going in with the view that something is narratively clever, you can always find reasons for it being that way, right? Um, so maybe it's just a bit too cute by half? It's, it's like, it's such an attractive read of the text that that itself makes it a little bit implausible. Add that to the pile of questions that we have. And one final one. One final question. And this can get missed because the other stories don't have this. You'll notice, let's just say, it is meant to end where it ends. You'll notice we never see the resurrected Jesus. He's never on screen, as it were. It's strongly implied another character with young man tells us that, that he's been raised, but it's never described to us. It sort of happens by implication. Now, we just spent a long time looking at Paul and what he thought. What does Mark think? Put it this way. What does the author of Mark think walked out of that tomb? Because you'd think perhaps, um, you know, Paul might have believed some weird stuff. But at one side, Paul is kind of off doing his own thing, right? And maybe isn't representative of, like, the quote-unquote mainstream church in Jerusalem. And surely once we get to the Gospels, by this point we're into the traditional story where it is a full bodily resurrection, you know, Jesus just gets up and walks out. I sort of think of this as zombie Jesus in my head. Um, I'm going to suggest, though, that... It's actually not as immediately clear who or what Mark thinks Jesus is. Now, Mark definitely thinks Jesus is the Messiah. That's the transfiguration, the revealing of that is, like I said, kind of the pivot point in this gospel. But Messiah can mean a lot of different things. I think, I'm not an expert on, well, I'm not an expert on any of this, I'm particularly not an expert on this. Um, I think in Hebrew Bible, it's, it's literally just sort of like anointed one. 
like kings can be messiahs, kings are messiahs. Um, and it means different things in Jewish thought, and it sort of seems like it's been taken up by the Jesus movement, and it means something different to them, or it might mean different things to them as well. There might be a plurality of understandings of what the Messiah is in early Christianity. But to, to sort of maybe just cast a bit of doubt, and if you go at the text not with the assumption that the author of Mark has a sort of modern, you know, triune, Jesus is one part of a three-part God sort of thing, I don't think that doctrine's developed yet. And just ask with, with a sort of open mind, what does Mark think Jesus was? Um, I'll give you a story. It's not a super interesting story, honestly, but it, it kind of perhaps sheds some light on this. From the beginning of Mark, um, one of his first miracles, Mark one twenty one, uh, quote, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. End quote. So, that, I'm going to suggest, is telling in a few senses. And I'll add in another verse. Um, it's about 12 verses ahead. This is Mark 1, 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. End quote. So, What's going on with this? Well, I'm going to take my interpretation here from an episode of the New Testament Review podcast. This is uh, Laura Robinson, Ian Mills. I don't think they've had much material recently, but there's a lot of good stuff in the archives. They'll often just, like, go over a single passage for, like, an hour or so, which is really useful. Um, so this is an exorcism story, right? And these are, like, super, super common. In Mark, um, there's an unclean spirit, and Jesus casts it out. But the kind of interesting bit is what the unclean spirit, the demon perhaps, who's possessing this guy, says to Jesus. He says, who are you? You've come to destroy us. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then later on it says, Jesus won't let these um, demon-possessed or people with unclean spirits. He won't let them speak because they know who he is. So what you have here is sort of a battle of exorcisms. Jesus performs an exorcism on this man, but it seems like what the demon is trying to do 
is perform an exorcism of Jesus because the steps of an exorcism is you name the demon first and by naming it you get power over it and you're able to cast it out so the demon is coming and saying i know you you're jesus you're the holy one of god he's almost like i say doing he's trying to do an exorcism on jesus but jesus is revealed to be more powerful and does an exorcism back and jesus doesn't have to go through the steps of like this sort of formula of how you get a demon out Jesus is revealed to be so powerful, he can just say, get out, and it gets out, right? So what does this tell us about what, who or what Jesus is? Well, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because demons recognize each other. We might not see that a person is possessed, but demons can see each other. So is Jesus some sort of, like, in this story, some sort of like supernatural spirit that's come, supernatural's the wrong word, some sort of spirit that's come to our world from the same place the demons have come from, but he's more powerful and he's good, but they recognize him. So what are we to make of that? Interestingly, as with all of Mark, it gets picked up in the other Gospels, and it gets changed a little bit. In Luke, this is Luke 4.31. Sorry, it took me a minute there. The story's very much the same. Changes one word. It, it goes from unclean spirit to unclean demon. And then when he says he wouldn't let the demons speak, it becomes this. And the demons came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. So Luke has copied it all word for word, but he's made it much more explicit when Mark just says, the demons knew who he was. Luke clarified that and said they knew that he was the Son of God and the Christ. He sort of because the the, the the demons just know who he is is quite opaque, right? Luke's clarified that for us. Is that what Mark meant to say all along? Or does Mark have quite a different understanding of who Jesus was? I think it's at best unclear. Here's, here's another little clue from that story. The word for spirit here, unclean spirit, is the same word or it's the same root when Paul talks about a spiritual body. Uh, Paul talks about a pneumaticus body, right? I covered that. This is an unclean pneuma is the word being used here. There's a difference that it's an adverb in Paul and a noun here, but it's the same word, pneuma, which has, it, it, it's used throughout the New Testament. Um, in, a few, in, in its most literal sense, it means breath or air, and it is, it is used like that sometimes in the New Testament. So in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes, 
is the pneuma blows where it wishes, right? So it is used in that sense, not super commonly. It can also mean breath, um, and that seems to go back to the Old Testament. There's a lot about the breath of life, for instance, in Genesis. Um, it can also seem to mean something like the vital principle through which the body is animated. Um, so again, staying in John, John 1930, uh, he then took the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and yielded up the spirit. So this is the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, he yielded up the pneuma, is the literal translation there. There's, there's also a bunch of times when it seems to be used to be, like, the part of the body that feels stuff. This quote's about, like, he groaned in his pneuma, or, like, he felt excitement in his pneuma, right? And so maybe one interpretation here is people have said it's a bit like maybe this concept of, like, chi or something like that. It's, like, their equivalent of that. But then it can also be used as an entity. Um, in the concordance, it, it lists these as a spirit higher than man, but lower than God. And we've seen that, like, an unclean spirit, right? It seems to be like a thing, a being, that possesses people, and it's used that way in all of the, uh, all of the Gospels. Except John, I think. John doesn't have any exorcisms. Um, and then the final one, of course, is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is, is the, the Most High Pneuma. Um, or you sometimes get the Pneuma of God. And one thing I found interesting here, just a random thought, is like this just shows how, how much judgment goes into translation. Like, how different does the Bible read if we don't translate pneuma as spirit if we translate it as breath or wind. So instead of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, we're talking about something like the divine wind or the breath of God. That kind of recasts the whole thing in a different light. Again, remember, we're pre-Trinity here. Haven't invented the doctrine of the Trinity. A man possessed with unclean breath Weird, interesting to think about. One final point to note here, and it's so obvious, but until someone pointed it out to me, I hadn't noticed this, is the author clearly just expects us to know what an unclean spirit is, right? A, a, an unclean, you know, a, a richly impure pneuma, maybe. What that is, um, it seems to be just part of people's common vocabulary. And so this was just a thing that people were aware of in ancient Judea. But what's worth noting is this really isn't anywhere in the Old Testament, right? In the Hebrew Bible, in the Pentateuch, there's a lot of, like, weird stuff going on. But exorcisms don't seem to be a central concern. Um, Matthias Hens, in his book, points out that there do seem to be quite a number of developments within Judaism 
from the period where, say, the last books of the Hebrew Bible were written, which is maybe 250 years prior to this. Something like Daniel is, is um, of, what is it, like 200, 180, off the top of my head. Um, and this period, and he goes on to make the point, we often look at the Jewish context for the New Testament with the point of view that that will help provide information that will make sense of the early Jesus movement for us, which it will. But he goes on to say, it's also the other way round, in that the, a lot of the writings from the New Testament are Second Temple Jewish documents. And although it's a different and unusual sect within Judaism, certainly, they also provide us, it's not just that Judaism sheds light on Christianity, it's also the reverse. Christianity sheds light on what was going on in Judaism at this period. And this idea of, like, demon possessions or being possessed by penumas and so on um, does seem to have really caught on within this time period in a way that it wasn't a central concern for earlier generations. And does that, perhaps, give us a bit of context and a bit of light for, for understanding sort of what's going on in people's heads as they develop these resurrection accounts and resurrection narratives, in that it's not just like, oh, everybody in the ancient world believed in ghosts or spirits or possessions or exorcisms. You, you get certain periods where people are really, like, have a heightened sense of this, and this is a common concern, and you get periods where it's not. And it looks like, from what we can piece together, that the authors in this period are writing during a time when possession by spirits or demons or whatever is, is a real concern for people. Um, and you can tell that, but they never need to explain what an unclean spirit is. It's assumed knowledge on the part of the reader. And it seems, from what we can tell from Mark, it seems to have been going on all over the place. Right? Um, so, when we're thinking about what are they trying to describe, and what do they think happened, I think that's really, really useful to, to, to keep in mind. This seems an age unusually concerned with possession. So, let's close out Mark there. Spent a while with Mark. Here's our earliest full narrative source. And let's review. Here we have our first full narrative account of the arrest, trial, execution of Jesus. We have an account, obviously, that he was crucified, died, rose in Paul, but it's much more fleshed out here. Um, we have our first account of the women being present, both at the execution, at the sealing of the tomb, and coming back to the tomb three days later. We have the resurrection, very, very strongly implied, but not shown on screen. And then the story stops in a way that's kind of puzzled and fascinated people for centuries, for as long as we've known that the story, the original version, ended there. Let's go next to Matthew. Matthew is the next gospel written, and 
It's really important for the analysis I'm going to do to say Matthew was probably at least 10 years after Mark, and that Matthew is literarily dependent on Mark, which is to say, almost certainly, the author of Matthew had a copy of Mark in front of him as he was writing. And we'll see that as we'll go through. I'll go through the, the arrest trial pretty quickly. Um, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, there's a few small differences, but it's almost exactly the same. So it gets cl the language gets cleaned up. So you remember Jesus tells someone not to attack one of the people coming to arrest him with a sword. In Matthew, you get this really nice line, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And you've heard some variant of that before, that's where that comes from. But just as significantly, that section ends. This is Matthew, I can cite scripture, 2656. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So that detail is in Matthew. It's, sorry, it's in Mark. It's in Matthew. And that's, I think, just really important for sort of understanding a bit of the structure of what comes next. Um, Jesus is taken before Caiaphas and the council. There's a tiny bit more detail, but it's basically the same story. And I think all you have here is Matthew just adding a little bit more sort of narrative to it. But it's, it's not extensive. Again, same. And you can see it's exactly following on from Mark. You get Peter denying Jesus three times and weeping bitterly about it. Um, you get Jesus delivered to Pilate, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, again following exactly from Mark. Interjection that's not in Mark, we now have Judas hanging himself. So, Matthew 27, 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them to the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then, what was fulfilled, what had been, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, quote, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. End quote. Um, my guess is what's happening here is Matthew is probably just tying up a sort of loose plot end. You can sort of imagine people reading Mark and you get this little bit about Judas betraying him. A very natural question would be, well, wait, what happened to Judas? Like I was saying, is he, you know, we talk about, we know there was a group called the Twelve immediately after. Was, wait, was Judas still a part of that, even after he betrayed Jesus? 
And Matthew's, I, I don't think this is really historical. I think what ha- what's happening here is Matthew's just clarifying. No, 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 he wasn't part of it. He died. How did he die? Oh, well, everyone in this story is protesting all the time about how innocent Jesus is. So, no, he, he realised Jesus was innocent and, and, and killed himself. Um, and I think that the rest of it, therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Is that historical? I'm guessing here, but my guess would be there was a place called the Field of Blood. And they've sort of linked it back to that and been like, well, you know, you know that's why it's called the Field of Blood. It's, um, I think the word is an etiology, like it's an origin story of a name. Um, but most etiologies aren't real. Like, if you ask people today, like, oh, what's the origin of the rule of thumb or stuff like that? You get stuff that's, like, probably mostly made up and urgent urban legends, like, and no different back then, right? Um, and obviously linking it back to Jeremiah and, and so on. Were the 30 pieces of silver historical or not? I mean, I, I'm guessing there probably was a betrayer. Maybe he was called Judas, maybe he wasn't. Was he paid 30 pieces of silver? Well, if he was, people would definitely latch on to that and be like, ah, I can connect that to, Jer- to um, Jeremiah. Um, but if he wasn't, maybe they just sort of added it in to link up with scripture? My guess would be because this story's nowhere in Mark. This is just an invention by Matthew. He's just sort of, he's tying down a loose end in the plot, essentially. And then after that, um, which is another thing that sort of makes me think this isn't some separate source. This is just Matthew adding in a little bit of detail that Mark's account doesn't cover. We pick right back up again with the Mark story. Jesus goes before Pilate. Um, There's the same story about the crowd being given the choice between Barabbas and Jesus. Um, you get another little bit of detail here, and this is this is one of those lines you just wish wasn't in the Bible. This is 27-24. So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged, Jesus delivered him to be crucified. So this, may his blood be on us, has been used to justify millennia of anti-Semitism and all of the vile things Christians have done to Jews over that time. It probably doesn't mean that. It probably doesn't mean, like, Jews are perpetually cursed or something, because Matthew is our most Jewish gospel in a lot of ways. Um, what it's probably about is about the destruction of the temple, and that it's two generations, right? It's us and our children. You know, the, the Old Testament knows how to curse people in perpetuity. It's not saying that. I think it's more like prefiguring something bad is coming to Jerusalem, would be my guess, and 
I think the guess of like, I think Laura Robinson from the New Testament Review podcast, who I've already cited, has an episode just on this, just on anti-Semitism in Matthew. Um, and that's her guess as well, that it's, it's more, because again, all of these accounts are obsessed with the destruction of the temple. But anyway, that's a little bit different to Mark, but again, it's a few sentences. I think this is a layering in, a sort of just adding a bit more colour to the narrative. Um, and then we're back in the Mark account. Jesus is mocked, you know, they, they put the... They say, oh, hail king of the Jews, mocking him and striking him. There's the crucifixion. There's a little bit of a difference in the dialogue here, but again, we're still following clearly the same story. Um, Jesus dies. This is now in the sixth hour, as opposed to the, um, the third hour. I'm not sure if that's super significant or not. Um, then he died. Um, this is 27.50, and there's going to be one line that's inserted in here that's like, what was that? And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yelled up his spirit. Guess what that word is? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split. Tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who were fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What? This is in no other gospel. It's two lines in, in Matthew. The tombs were opened and all the dead just went wandering around saying hi to people. I have no idea what this is about. And as far as I can tell, nobody has any idea what this is about. Because it's never referenced again in any way. But yeah, as we're talking about resurrection, apparently we've got like a whole Day of the Dead type thing going on. Um, and then we're straight back into Mark again. When the centurion rose, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake that took place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. The earthquake, Matthew likes earthquakes. He puts them in at a few points where they're not in his source. So I think we can safely say the earthquake bit um, isn't like another source. It isn't like historical evidence. It's... It's, it very much fits with Matthew's redaction profile, which is to say this is in character for how Matthew edits Mark. And, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say the tombs opening and the dead wandering around the city, I'm going to go ahead and just say that wasn't historical either. Um, where he's getting that from, why he put it in there, I think this this verse just baffles everyone, as far as I can tell. Um, and then just like uh, Mark, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Um, so you've got, as I flagged earlier, you've got, 
a slightly different formulation of Mary's, and we're not going down the rabbit hole of, like, what's going on with this. Um, you then get exactly the same story, almost word for word. Um, you get Joseph of Arimathea um, went, asks Pilate for the body, um, and, quote, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had just cut in the rock. Okay. That's the only change, but I think it's an interesting one. Because you recall in Mark, they go into the tomb, which again would be like cut in the rock, but like a central hallway, with like little bits coming off, each big enough to fit a body. Um, the author of Mark seems aware that in a tomb that was sort of like had that physical makeup, it would be really easy to make a mistake. It's dark and, you know, like I say, once they start to decompose, bodies aren't particularly identifiable. And so Mark has this line about he, the, the person pointing and saying, look, you put him there, he's not there anymore. Matthew just gets ahead of that. It was a new tomb which has just been made, so there's nobody in there, right? Brand new tomb. So... You can almost sort of see Matthew reading Mark, understanding what Mark's doing there, and thinking, this'll just be easier to explain if we just say it's a new tomb. That's like a cleaner way through. And again, I would absolutely not interpret that as, like, historical whatever. These authors are just sort of trying to get out ahead a little bit of, like, objections or questions from their audience. Um... Talking of which, 62, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the fraud will be worse than the last. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as they can. So they went, and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. End quote. What's going on here? Well, isn't it obvious, I would say? People have sort of been like, oh, did this happen? No, no. This is just another one of these little additions to Mark. And all he's doing is he's answering the charge that Jesus' disciples stole him away at night. Here's what I think happened. I think that was something people were saying. Matthew was aware that people were saying it. So he's creating this story to rebut it. How do I know that people at the time were saying that? Because Matthew himself tells us that later in the text. And this especially makes sense if we date Matthew 10, 15 years after Mark and assume that Mark got quite wide circulation and became quite popular 
the version of the story as appears in Mark is going around, and in Mark, as you recall, the women are there to see the tomb being sealed, but then they go away for three days and come back to find it empty. That story's going around. You can, you can just so imagine people thinking, well, I bet the disciples just nicked it, right? I don't think it's historical, because I think it's historical that the disciples fled. So they simply weren't there to do any grave robbing. Also, I don't think Jesus did prophesy his own death. I don't think there was an expectation that he would rise again amongst his disciples. I think the whole thing clearly caught them quite off guard. So I don't think there's any historical reality behind this. I don't think the disciples did try to steal the body. And I don't think the Jewish authorities or the Romans tried to prevent them stealing the body. I think what's happened is as Mark's story have circulated, people have sort of pointed out that hole in it, that there's a there's a period in which the body's unsupervised, right? So something's going to have happened there. And so Matthew creates this story to cover that gap. I think that's by far and away the most sort of... It just has the benefit of parsimony, right? It matches up with everything else. And it matches up. And again, we've seen a few times already, Matthew is changing Mark in certain ways and adding stuff to kind of, like, cover the gaps in the narrative and answer potential concerns or scepticism that people might have, right? Okay, so Matthew 28, we finally get to the resurrection. This starts off pretty similar to Mark, but then keeps going. So, now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Who's the other Mary? You see what I mean, right? And behold, there was a great earthquake. Do you, now that we've done all the work in the, in, the, in the last episode of, like, really showing that Matthew's later and using Mark as a source. Do you see how fun it is to read him, knowing that? And you just start to see how this guy's mind works. He's following Mark. He's added a few details here and there to sort of clean it up and answer some stuff. He gets to the story and he's like, this is a good story, I like it. Needs an earthquake. Matthew likes earthquakes. He's just putting them in all the time, and maybe this had some religious significance to him. Maybe the dude just liked earthquakes. Maybe he just sees the story and is like, yeah, this is a good story. It's missing something. What's it missing, Matthew? I'm just thinking, is it... What could we... Oh, I know. Oh, let me guess, Matthew. Is it an earthquake? But yes, (laughs) the funniest one of these is, this is an aside, is, you know, the Jesus calming the storm bit, where they're out on a boat and there's a storm, and Jesus rebukes the storm and rebukes the wind and everything dies down, right? Guess what Matthew does to that story? Instead of a storm causing the waves, it's an earthquake. And then he has Jesus rebuke the winds. What winds? When earthquakes do not cause winds. They might cause waves, but they don't cause winds. And what's happened here is called editorial fatigue. Matthew has been copying Mark. He's seen the story and thought, you know, 
You know what needs improving there? Needs an earthquake. So he puts an earthquake in, but then without thinking about it, just starts copying Mark again, word for word, including the bit where Jesus rebukes the wind. Hasn't noticed that he's done this, but by adding an earthquake, which we know Matthew loves to do, and then just slipping back into sort of uncritically just copying his source, he's created a narrative inconsistency, namely a windy earthquake. And this is an argument people give, it's a bit hard to follow, but like, it basically almost proves that Mark was the source and Matthew was the copier, right? Because we can establish a really clear profile of Matthew as adding earthquakes, again, for whatever reason. This is um, from uh, Brian Carrier's book, Earthquakes and Eschatology in the Gospel According to Matthew. So there have been literal books written on this. Um, he writes... Quote, in total, Matthew contains eight references to seismic activity, lists them. Then, quote, it is telling that the majority of these references are found only in Matthew. The fourth gospel contains no references to shaking or earthquakes. All three synoptics list earthquakes as a sign of the end times and contain the prophecy that the powers of the heavens will be shaken in the final age. However, the remaining six references to shaking and earthquakes are unique to Matthew's narrative. Only in Matthew is the storm in the sea described as an earthquake. And incidentally, my Bible translates it differently just as storm, but apparently the original Greek is earthquake. Only in Matthew are the shaking of Jerusalem and its corresponding dialogue recounted in the triumphal entry scene. Only in Matthew is there mention of the earth shaking, rocks splitting, and the dead rising from their tombs in conjunction with Jesus' death. Furthermore, only in Matthew is the earthquake directly connected to the centurion's proclamation of Jesus' divine sonship. Finally, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make reference to an eventful encounter at an empty tomb, only in Matthew is there mention of an earthquake. End quote. So, there you go. Matthew, if you've learned nothing else from this, it's that Matthew likes earthquakes. But I go through all that for a reason, which is what I'm trying to show you here, what I'm trying to argue, is we've gone through a couple of chapters of Matthew now. What I'm trying to argue is there are essentially two voices coming to us from this text. An original source and an editor. Or simply, we have the voices of Mark and we have the voices of Matthew. Now, if we didn't have Mark, it would be a lot more challenging to make sense of this. But that we do have Mark, we can see where Mark's voice is coming through. And then we can see where Matthew's adding to that. And I say adding to that because I think all of the differences and additions that we've looked at are either Matthew cleaning up certain bits, closing out narrative threads, tidying up some details, or adding stuff that fits his redaction profile, adding his own spin, adding his own take on it. So the earthquake is just a type one example, as it were, of 
Matthew just adding his own little flourishes to it. And I think all the dead walking around, again involving an earthquake, right? That's a little spin from Matthew. What there isn't is a third voice in this story. There is in other parts of Matthew. There's other parts where he's not working from... There's other parts of Matthew where he's not working from Mark, and suddenly this other voice comes in that has other stories in a different style and with seemingly different theology. We call that voice Q, the sort of hypothetical source that both Matthew and Luke worked from, but I don't think there's no Q here, and most people, when they try to reconstruct Q, it stops short of the resurrection. It's just sayings of Jesus. Um, so anyway, back into the story, there's been this distinctively Matthean earthquake. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. End quote. So I'll just note here, um, you remember I said earlier, um, Dale Martin's interpretation of the spiritual, the pneumaticus body, is as something that's evocative of flashing lights. We cannot have that again here, right? The, the robes flashing like lightning. Um, so. Maybe that's another data point to when people imagine spirits or angels or resurrected bodies, possibly. They're imagining something that's, I guess today we'd say, like, almost bioluminescent? Maybe. another People have connected that as a data point. Um, but the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen. And he said, come see the place where he lay, and then go quickly to his disciples, that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee when you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. So, a couple of slight differences again from Mark, right? The young man has been promoted to an angel. I, 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 I think that just kind of makes sense that you'd kind of like, in your, in your sort of rewriting of this story, seems like there's something up with this young man. Let's just clarify that. It's an angel, right? Um, and then, see the place where he lay is still the same, but we've clarified the tomb is empty, so there's no confusion. Go and tell his disciples. Now, in Mark, the women depart with fear and don't tell anybody. In Matthew, they depart with fear and great joy and go to tell his disciples. So, Matthew is like... Like I said, people sort of felt like they needed to be more. But there's actually... Not that much more to this gospel. Then immediately afterwards, and behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and came up and took and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped them. And Jesus said to them, "Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, 
and there they will see me. So again, in this story, like Mark, the, God, the disciples have fled. Unlike Mark, we get to see Jesus. We don't get any description of Jesus here. He's just there. <laughs> Jesus met them and said hi, right? Then we cut out of the narrative, and we get, this is 2811, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests that what had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took their money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. End quote. And I think if you're sort of tracking the analysis that I've been doing so far, this makes total sense, right? We now have an origin story for the myth, for an origin story for the allegation that the disciples stole him away. Is any of this historical? I don't think so, right? I think clearly once Mark's account circulated, people started saying, well, his disciples stole the body. Even though in both Mark and Matthew the disciples weren't there, but maybe it was the women or something, I don't know. But that didn't happen. But also this isn't, you know, all that's happened here is there is a general allegation that this has happened. And Matthew is saying, look, this is where the allegation came from, and this is why it's not true. He's just covering both of those points in the text. So I'd say these are just almost certainly just, this is a later layer, right? We're tracking the Mark story through. And there's this layer on top that's covering some objections that seem to have arisen possibly since Mark circulated. And then the last bit. Now, the 11, G the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains, to which Jesus had directed them. And they saw him and worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the Most High Wind, if we want to do my translation, teaching them and observe all that I have commanded to you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. End quote, end gospel. So is it just me? We, we, we spent a bit of time on how, like, Mark kind of abruptly trails off. Is it just me, or does Matthew kind of abruptly trail off, too? Like, we've done all this work of, like, setting up the resurrection, and we saw the kind of careful editing that Matthew's doing to try and make the account more believable. We build to that, and then we just get this one short paragraph. And then, and no ascension. We still haven't got an ascension story yet. So how does this story end? Let's move on to Luke. Now, when it comes to the literary relationship between the Gospels, this is where you begin to get some divergences among scholars. One approach is we know both Luke and Matthew knew Mark. What's the relationship between Matthew and Luke? Some people think there wasn't one, that they were written independently but using the same two sources. 
mark and this Q document. Another simpler interpretation is just that Luke knew Matthew. For this, I'm going to go with that. I'm assuming that each subsequent gospel author was familiar with all of the gospels before them. I think, here's what I think, and again, mountainous grains of salt, I think Luke had at least three scrolls in front of him when he was writing. I think he had Mark, clearly. I think he also had Matthew, because there's bits of Matthew that make it over into Luke. And I think he had Matthew's other source, Q. And I think Luke, when in doubt, he goes to the primary source, but he is familiar with Matthew. That's more controversial, but that's... You just have, I think to make the argument I'm going to make, you have to make assumptions about who knew who, and that's the assumption I'm making. Um, I'm going to go through Luke quite fast, because we've done the other Gospels in a lot of detail. And there's not that much to add here. Um, the story's in exactly the same order. Um, there's just a few more bits. It's just another layer on top. Um, so the arrest and betrayal of Jesus happens the same way with you know, Judas kissing him. Um, there's a bit of a difference, you know, there's some incident with a sword happening. Um, in Luke, he cuts the ear off the servant, and Jesus rebukes him, but then touches the ear and heals him. So, in each subsequent account, Jesus is getting, like, more and more condemning, as it were, of this act. And then here's the big difference is in Luke, the disciples don't flee. So in our earliest two accounts, the disciples flee. In accounts written in 70 and 80, let's say Luke is 90, say. Once we get a little bit from it, Luke seems to... A lot of what's going on in Mark is Marx trying to explain how he has this account when none of the disciples were there. Matthew's cleaning a lot of that up, and then Luke is just sort of removing the potential for confusion to, um, to begin with. Um, you get the same story about Peter denying Jesus. There might be a few words different, but it seems basically the same to me. Jesus is mocked. Jesus goes before the council, he goes before Pilate, then you get an addition in, in Luke which doesn't appear in either of our previous ones, which is he goes before Herod. This would be Herod Antipas, who is a tetrarch, who is a, in, he's a ruler of like a small part of Judea, but apparently he's, he's in Jerusalem at the time, which I guess he would be, it's Passover, that kind of makes sense. Um... Is this another source, or is this just a sort of invention that's been layered on? I mean, here's the thing with all of the trial narratives, is how do we know about any of this? How do we know what Jesus said to Pilate? Who was there recording it? Um, there's a sort of bit about, oh, maybe like Peter followed behind and overheard from the courtyard, which is in John. But that would only be the trial before the Sanhedrin, not the trial before Pilate. And the Romans weren't, there wouldn't be like a court reporter there or anything. 
and presumably Pilate hasn't gone and found the disciples and been like, let me tell you how it went down. Although, there is a later tradition that Pilate comes to regret this and converts to Christianity and is indeed a saint in certain Orthodox churches, Saint Pilate. And I've always thought, what would Pontius Pilate make of any of this? If you could sort of show him what happens. I think his honest response is, he'd be like, who? Jesus? Who was that again? Like, the Romans were pretty regularly in the business of, like, executing people they saw as troublemakers, particularly in this region and time. But anyway, um, historically, that's a much later invention. I don't think Pilate converted to Christianity. Um, so how do we sort of know any of this? Um, and based on that, I'm tempted to sort of say, where's the, if this is an independent source that Luke's bringing in for the, the, the he goes before Herod, Where's that come from? I think what's more likely is at every stage, these authors seem to want to have people making sure we know that Jesus is innocent. And I think there's sort of an obvious reason for that, right? Which is when someone gets executed, the natural response is to go, well, they must have done something to deserve it. And I made the analogy to um, Black Lives Matter protests um, in contemporary America, in that they have to work really hard to humanise victims of police violence, because a lot of people's natural response when someone gets killed by the state is they must have been a troublemaker, a thug, a criminal, right? Um, and the, the gospel writers are doing exactly the same thing here. So I think it's just one more person who says Jesus is innocent. That's my read on that. Um, and again, you, you can see how having your sequence of Gospels and the dates lets you make that sort of analysis. That wouldn't be the take I give, gave you, for instance, if I knew that Luke was written first, right? But the fact that it's third, we haven't heard this story yet. How would we know this story anyway? And it seems to fit a sort of thematic narrative function within the text. This is just another little layer. You know, so we've, we've got Mark and we've layered on Matthew and now we're sort of layering on Luke. Um, same story about uh, Barabbas. Um, the crucifixion goes on a bit longer in Luke. Um, he dies sixth, sixth hour again this time. And there was darkness, um, this is 23.44, and now it was the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus, calling out, in, was in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, breathed his last. And now the centurion saw what had taken place, and praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And the crowds had assembled for the spectacle, and when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances, and all the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. A few differences there. No earthquake, but we have some sort of darkness. Um, does this just mean that it was cloudy, or there was an eclipse, or some, something even more dramatic? Don't know. Um, the centurion says something that's not surely this man was the son of God, surely this man was innocent. 
So there's another little bit of a twist. But here's the main one. The disciples haven't fled in Luke. And so that tiny one-sentence omission from the Mark and Matthew arrest story a couple of chapters back now makes sense because he can say, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So what, what Luke seems to have done here is quite interesting, right? He's edited the story in some ways, but maintained it in some ways. And what I suspect is, by this point, Mark and Matthew as well have been in circulation for 10, 20 years. And it's sort of like common knowledge, as it were, that the women were there. And perhaps, I'm speculating here, but perhaps because the disciples fleeing is like only one line, that's quite easy to take out. And so he brings the disciples back in, but he also keeps the women there as well. Maybe? But I think that's a reasonable reconstruction of what happened here. Um, we get the same story with Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and was looking for the kingdom of God. He went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, took it, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So do you see how it's evolved? Mark is sensitive to the idea that they might have just made a mistake here. Matthew's like, well, you know, he's he, so, so a new tomb. And Luke is like, just to be absolutely explicit for you dum-dums in the back, there was no body in this tomb before Jesus got there. No one was there. Have I finally made that clear? Um. And he goes on to say, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. <laughs> so Luke's just really nailing this point home. Subtle little bits you can miss, and it, again, you only can make sense of this when you know the order they were written in. The resurrection. And you'll see again, it just seems to build on what we've covered so far. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. This is Luke 24. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Lord Jesus. And they were perplexed about this. And behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men, and crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, and Jonah and Mary the brother of the Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But their words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, 
Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home, marvelling at what had happened. So, the young man has been promoted to an angel, that's now been promoted to two angels. But the physical description is quite similar, dazzling apparel, right? Which is why I do think, I mean, one of many reasons, Luke knew Matthew, right? Because this bit isn't in Mark, and I don't think it's in Q. So that's coming from there. But that little line that Luke took out, that the disciples fled, Luke's decided to ignore that, right? But what's, what's the deal with Galilee going to Galilee? Oh, well, he didn't say go to Galilee, because the disciples have fled there, apparently. He said, remember what he told you while he was still in Galilee, right? So you can, Luke's trying to do two things here, right? He's trying to both clean up the story and make it simpler and easy to follow, but he also wants to sort of retain the bits of it that people will know. So he's retaining the women. And it's, there's something up with Galilee, but it's just that Jesus was, you know, he told you something while he was there. It's not that we're going to Galilee. And then Peter can run and double check because he's there, right? He hasn't fled. He did deny Jesus, but he hasn't fled. And each subsequent gospel will, will diminish the women a bit more. Um, we'll, we'll see that with John, the disciples play an even more sort of central, central role in this. Um, then there's a really long story where, like, Jesus returns and meets them on the road, but they don't recognise him, and they tell him what's happened, and they go back and forth, and it's kind of not hugely interesting or narratively important. Um, and then Jesus apparently can, like, disappear and reappear, or the resurrected Jesus can in Luke. So he disappears, and then he reappears. This is Luke twenty-four thirty-six. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw the Spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, for that it is I himself. Touch me and see. For the spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he said this, and he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marvelling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms will be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his message to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witness to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. 
and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. End of Gospel. So, here we finally get two things that we've been waiting for in this story the whole time. The bodily resurrection and the ascension. By the way, when Jesus says, you look like you've seen a spirit, I'm not a spirit. Any guess what that word is? He's saying, I'm not a pneuma. Could a pneuma have... You, you, a pneuma, apparently, does not have flesh and bones. Whatever this thing is they're imagining in the early resurrection accounts. Um, apparently doesn't have flesh and bones, and apparently it also doesn't eat fish. Like, this is almost just like a proof, isn't it? He's like, they're like, oh, wow, he's not a spirit after all, and Jesus is like, just to really prove that I'm not a pneuma, give me that fish to eat. And he eats it in front of them, and this seems to prove something to them. So, I've no idea here. Like I said, we're kind of guessing at, like, what they have in their head when they talk about pneumas, or unclean pneumas or pneumatic bodies. We don't really know, right? But apparently whatever it is they are, they don't eat fish. Presumably they just don't eat in general. Um, so, what's going on with Luke here? Is Luke aware of the types of accounts of the resurrection that we find in Paul and directly contradicting them? Or is it more like he's doing what we've seen these authors doing the whole time and sort of responding to sceptics? In the, you can well imagine sceptics saying, oh, look, I mean, maybe they saw something, but Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They saw, like, a ghost or something, you know? And remember, this is an age when ghosts are, like, everywhere, apparently. Um, and Luke wants to rebut that charge and say, you know, people are out there saying that, that these people are just, like, they've seen some phantom, essentially. And he's saying, no, 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 Jesus came back with a body, the disciples saw it, they touched it, and he even ate a fish in front of them, right? I don't know. I think it's the latter. I think, again, it's sort of answering skeptics, right? Um, and, yeah, like, it's answering skeptics because it's, it's really questionable, again. Luke is the author of Acts as well. Acts goes over Paul in great detail, but doesn't seem aware of the letters we have from Paul. There's three big speeches by Paul in Acts. And it's so weird. All of them have a different theology, both to each other and to Luke. So why is that? And I guess my best answer is we have a pretty good idea, or we can make some really good educated guesses about what this author's sources are for the Gospel of Luke. I've told you what I think. It's Mark, Matthew, and Q. I think he has all three in front of him. And you can piece it together of what we've been doing. We can see, you know, once you read them carefully, you can see how they're following a source and adding bits in, right? And like I say, there's other parts of, like, the life of Jesus 
where there's this other source that we don't have, but you can sort of see that there's this different voice emerges. Um, so with, when it comes to acts, I'd say, you know, if we just had Luke, if we didn't have Matthew or Mark, I think we'd be able to say that this author is using different sources, because he says things that seem contradictory, or there's sort of stylistic and tonal changes. You could see he's working from something. But I don't think we'd ever be able to reconstruct... If we didn't have Mark, I don't think we'd ever be able to reconstruct it, right? I, I think we're a bit like that with the Book of Acts. He has sources that we don't have, but we just don't know what they are, and it's probably just beyond our ability to reconstruct. And I say all that to say, has, you know, has he read 1 Corinthians? I mean, it's, it's what, like 30, 40 years after, and we know these documents circulated wildly, so it seems like he should have done, but maybe he hasn't. There's no evidence that he has. So if he hasn't, maybe he's, when, when Jesus is going, I am absolutely not a bloody panuma, and give me that fish so I can prove to you that I'm not. If he's not aware of Paul, then he's not rebutting Paul. Maybe that idea was in circulation. Maybe it's not. Maybe, and here's an idea, it is just not clear to a lot of people at the time what Mark, and even Matthew, thinks walked out of that tomb. Mark never, we never see the risen Jesus on screen in Mark. We see him in Matthew, but it's, it's very brief, and there's no physical description. Is Luke maybe just answering a common question that people had? People are like, so did he... Because, and, and the same question we know was asked of Paul. Paul says, people will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what type of body do they come? And as you recall, Paul's answer is, you absolute idiot. But it's a, it's a, we have actually a direct source, Paul, saying people were asking this question of the resurrection stories. Mark, it's opaque what that answer is. And even Matthew doesn't directly say this is, this is what a resurrected body looks like. Maybe people just sort of kept asking the question and Luke's sort of like, I'm going to settle this once and for all. We finally get the ascension. It's quite short. And I'll make another point. Is, is it just me, or does what Jesus say in both Matthew and Luke when he comes back feel a bit underwhelming? There's no big new revelation. There's no big new Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of just a rehashing of what he said before, and it's slightly different in both because the authors have slightly different theologies and there's distinctive things like Luke saying... Uh, has Jesus say, um, you'll preach to all nations, but starting with Jerusalem. And that, that will repeat through the book of Acts. In, the, in Acts, Luke always has Paul preach to the Jews first, and only the Gentiles once the Jews, is, Jews have rejected him. Um, whereas Paul says nothing of the kind. Paul looks like he was just going out directly to Gentiles. So I think that just one little bit is we talked about redaction profiles. We said, we said um, 
Matthew likes earthquakes. Luke likes the idea of Jews first, then Gentiles. He's reconciled to that we are converting Gentiles because, you know, Paul was setting up, we know Paul had half a dozen churches, and that was a generation or so ago, and presumably they've only grown since then. So Luke is reconciled to that they exist, but he wants to retain a sort of Jewish focus to this movement. Of, um, yeah, and so the little bit where it's like Jerusalem first, that's just very distinctively Luke. And I sort of mention that to, to make the same point I do with the earthquakes, in that are these bits reflective of another source? Is there some other document that they're drawing from here? Or is it just layer upon layer being built on Mark with cleaning up, getting the narrative straight, answering skeptics, and also correcting for theology, as it were? Like, making sure that it has what you think is sort of the correct spin on it. So, okay. That is four out of our five resurrection accounts. Last to be written is John. Now, John is different. Mark, Matthew, Luke are structurally dependent on each other. John isn't. You don't get these long, verbatim sort of things from John. And so people have sort of asked, well, is John working from an independent source. A lot of people have argued that John is working from an independent source. And I'm just going to go through John reasonably quickly, because John go goes on at length, right? Um, so I'll just go through the structure, starting at John 18, which is the arrest and betrayal. And let's just sort of ask, this isn't literally dependent on the synoptics, but is what we're looking at here someone writing a bit later, maybe even like 100, 110, something like that, who sort of knows the story that's come down to us through the synoptics and is telling it in his own way? Or is this someone who's working from a completely different source, which might give us additional information as to what actually went on here historically? Right? Um, I mean, I was, I was arguing, I was debating with someone on Twitter who was um, a theology professor of some kind, because apparently this is what I'm doing with my life, um, and they were arguing John was the first gospel written. Um, and they had sort of arguments and so on, but just read it with me. And I'm just going to call your attention to, like, certain details that I've been calling attention to with all of the three synoptics of, like, What's the author doing with this little bit, and why, you know? Um, and let's just think about how, you know, let's proceed with the um, assumption, with the hypothesis, that this is a, a significantly later gospel, um, and see whether that sort of matches the text. So, John 18 is the same story he's Betrayed by Jesus, um, betrayed by, um, I've been recording for a little bit, he's um, betrayed by Judas. Um, same drama about, like, having a sword and cutting off someone's ear, it's told a little bit differently. Like Luke, the disciples don't flee in John, right? 
it's it's narratively easier if they don't flee, right? It's easier to make the story work. So once we've got the disciples staying in Jerusalem, then they stay in the Jerusalem in Jerusalem in later tellings of the story. Tiny little story um about an interaction between Annas and Caiaphas that isn't in the other gospels. Um Peter denies Jesus again. The only difference here, really, is it's interspersed. So there's the first denials, then we go over to the high priest questioning Jesus, and then we flip back to the last denial of Peter. So it's almost like in a movie where you're cutting between two scenes as the action goes on, Um, which I suppose makes it a little bit more narratively interesting, but it's the exact same story with just the order reshuffled a little bit. Jesus goes before Pilate, and while in Mark, doesn't say anything to Pilate, has a whole philosophical disputation about the nature of truth with Pilate, and you get this bit about, my kingdom is not of this world, and all of that. Um, Pilate says to him, what is truth? And, you know, that. could be an independent source. It's definitely, there's a lot of material here that we haven't seen before. But again, if it is, where is this coming from? Right? There's the same bit about Pilate thinking he's innocent and not wanting to do it, but the Jews kind of make him do it. Again, this doesn't read as historical to me. Roman governors were not really in the habit of like, letting policy be dictated to them like this. Um, But you get that whole big back and forth. Um, The crucifixion. Um, Here's a little bit that's in John that I've always found kind of funny, that isn't in the others. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. All of the other accounts have something like that. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest said, said of, uh, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Uh, And there's kind of like two interpretations of that. Like, Pilate's really convinced he is the king of the Jews, so he's going to put it up there no matter what the high priest says. And the the other is that he's kind of mocking them, right? He's like, oh, king of the Jews, we're going to kill your king. And they're like, no, 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 don't say he's our king. Say um, that he said he was our king. And Pilate's like, hey, I put what I put. It's kind of almost like a power move. Um, Anyway... Um, here's the difference. We get the story, they divide the clothes among them, John makes explicit the the scriptural citation there. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
Uh, okay. So, once again, we're not going into whatever's going on with the Marys. But the witnesses we have to this story have got physically closer. So, in, the, in Mark's account, they were standing, like, out of sight, right? And now they're right by the cross talking to Jesus. And, because the disciples haven't fled, there's one of them there. Who apparently is now going to look after Jesus' mother, which is nice. Nice for Jesus, you know, in the hour of his death to make sure his mum's alright. Um, Jesus dies. And then there's an addition we don't find elsewhere. Jesus' side is pierced. When you see... Um, images of the crucifixion, there's often a gash in his side, right? This is where that comes from. Uh, so this is, I've, I've realised I've just blasted through um, John here, but John goes on. This is 1931. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So that the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, and again another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. So, what's going on with this? I think just a very similar thing that we've been tracking so far, right? Um... So for one thing, you remember I said often that the bodies would just be left up on the cross. We have an account of why they weren't here. You know, like, like heads on a pike or something. You'd keep the, the, these rotting remains as like a particularly morbid reminder of pe for people not to step out of line. Um, there's an account that the bodies won't remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, because we're, we're going through the Passover, right? Not sure if this is historical or not. This actually, like, because presumably they didn't just leave Jesus' body up there. Whatever happened, it probably wasn't that, right? So maybe this is why that didn't happen? But again, it's only in our latest gospel, so who knows? Um... And that out came blood and water from the wound actually sounds kind of realistic for a dead body. But, but what's going on here, really? I think what they're sensitive to here is the charge that Jesus didn't actually die. That he kind of passed out on the cross and they took him down thinking he was dead. And then he just got up and wandered off later. Now... I would suggest that that's actually not crazy as an interpretation, right? This is actually what the Quran says happened to Jesus, I think. Um, I'm nowhere near as familiar with the Quran, um, so Muslim friends correct me on that one. 
But I think the Quran says, like, Jesus was a prophet, he was a good dude, didn't rise from the dead, the Romans just made a mistake. And it must have happened, right? Because crucifixion could take hours, it could take days, it was a very slow, nasty death through asphyxiation. Um, the detail of breaking the legs is right. Um, if they wanted to just get it over with, they'd break people's legs so they couldn't support themselves, and they'd just asphyxiate. And what could be days, it would get cut short to, like, a few minutes, right? Or not, well, at any rate, not that long. Um, so that's, this all sort of has the ring of truth to it. Um, but I think what they're sensitive to is I think people are telling this story, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it looks like in the first generation, there wasn't that much detail to it. And as more detail is added, more challenges arise. And so more, more has to be added to the story to counter those challenges. And so I can well imagine um, someone sort of saying, well, maybe you just didn't die. Like, crucifixion's really nasty, but people can last for, for days up there sometimes. Maybe he just passed out. They thought he was dead. Put him in a tomb. Then he, you know, wanders out again a few days later. Now, I don't think that is what happened. But, like, it's not a crazy thought that people would have had, right? And so they're saying, nope, we know that he died on the cross because a soldier stabbed him with a spear. And, let me just get this bit in, the soldier, has, the soldier wrote that down, his testimony's true, he knows he's telling the truth, and, and you believe it too. Is it just me, or is John, the lady doth protest a bit too much here? Like, he's really belaboring that point, right? And you can sort of tell <laughs> when the gospel writers are doing these credibility moves, because they're not especially subtle about it, right? He's like, nope, definitely dead. And I'm sorry, no, I don't believe this. I don't believe we have a Roman, is it a centurion or just a guard? One of the soldiers. I don't believe we have a Roman soldier who's then met up with the disciples later and written down his account of what happened. I don't know. This isn't how things worked. Um, this was a hated occupying force who thought very unpleasant things about the population they were occupying. I mean, maybe, maybe. It's not beyond the realms of history. But what, what is more likely? That, that we had a soldier writing down this account of some random condemned Leistoi, or that the gospel writer just really wants to drive home that this is definitely true, what I'm telling you. I think it's the latter, surely, right? Jesus is buried very similar. He's now buried in a garden, um, but Joseph of Arimathea still... Um, and quote 41, now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So we have a bit of a different origin story about, like, the tomb and whatever, but you've got that same detail. Nobody's in this tomb yet. And so, when people argue that, like, John is an independent source because he's not copying word for word, or that he doesn't know the synoptics, like, are you kidding? This is the exact same story. It's written up in different language. It goes on for longer. There's other details in it. But we've covered the exact same story. 
right? Even down to these little, and not only are we covering the same big beats like the arrest and the crucifixion, because I guess you can argue, well, they're just reporting on how it happened, right? And yes, they're telling the same story because they're all telling something that roughly is historically correct, can argue that. But down to these weird little things which I'm pretty sure get put in the text as like credibility enhancers, you've got that following through into John as well. So I would say clearly, clearly, like, John knows the synoptics, right? Surely. He's following the same story beats, just telling them in his own way. Right? This, is a, this is a movie remake where the director takes, you know, pretty big licenses with the source material. But it's still, like, they must have seen the, the original movie at some point, right? Um... Resurrection. And again, the resurrection's pretty similar. Um, quote John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, and both of them were running together. I, I seem to have a bit of a different voice when I'm reading John. Anyway. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw that the linen clothes were laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the clothes lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up and in a place by itself. I think this is the origin of the Shroud of Turin. That's what that's supposed to be. Anyway. And the same detail about Peter finding the clothes, but not the body, right? Again, the, 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 it lines up, right? Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and he believed, for as of, yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary Magdalene stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped, she stooped in to look in, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go now to my brothers to say to them, I am ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So, as you can see from that, the writing style is very... John has a lot more dialogue than the other Gospels. And it's lovely dialogue, isn't it? The, the, the woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? She's in a panic because she thinks someone's stolen the body. Um, but it, 
again, the, the main beats are here, right? Two angels, Mary Magdalene, then Jesus. Right? Um, so again, is this an independent source? Or is this just, like I say, the movie director remaking the scene? Right? This is the scene in the remake, right? But it has, it has the same beats. Um, now, the resurrection appearances are more extensive in John. Um, he comes to them, be at peace with you. There's the bit with Doubting Thomas, um, where he doesn't believe it's Jesus. And then Jesus says, um, this is 2027. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand, and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. So, two points with doubting Thomas. One, physical resurrection. It's his body. There's incidentally all sorts of queer interpretations of this passage. Um, not to be too explicit, but put your fingers in me. Penetrate me, Thomas. Like, you can sort of see how people would. I'm not saying this is what the author intended, but you can, you can sort of see how people have done queer readings of this, right? Um, bodily resurrection, and quite similar to Luke with, like, look at my body. It's a real body. Um, and he um, goes fishing with them and eats fish with them later, right? So same exact deal. Um, the other is, there's kind of a moral judgment here, right? What's this story telling us? What's the purpose of this story? It's to say, it's, you know, Thomas is a bit like, you know... We're supposed to feel like Thomas isn't, you know, he's done something that's, um, it's not commendable that he's doubted, is it? It's to his discredit that he's doubted in this story. And then, because these authors always want to make them all quite explicit, it's, okay, you've seen and believed, that's good. But how cool and awesome are the people who believe without having seen, right? So again and again, the authors are trying to sell you the story, right? And this isn't like, I'm not like having, well, I guess I am having a go, but like, there's nothing unusual here. These authors have an agenda. All authors, they're, they're writing to convince you, right? Um, blessed are those who do not believe. There's another appearance where he helps them, like I say, catch some fish. Um, and then I'll do the final bit because I think this is interesting for sourcing. Jesus and the beloved apostle. Peter turned and he saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining on the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him, that he was to, not to die. 
but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and that we know that his testimony is true. Now there is a great many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. End quote, end gospel. Um, so just again, never mind like the meaning of this story or whatever. Um, here's an interpretation of that. Jesus says in the synoptics that some of you still, who are listening to me, will be alive when the end of the world comes. Now, with the dating I've given you, Mark 40 years on, yeah, that's plausible that that would track. You know, someone who's 20 when Jesus was alive, who's 60 now, um, that's fine. Matthew, Luke, what are we just saying, 1890? Just, right? Just. And there's a, there's a sort of myth that grew up from this called the Wandering Jew, which is there's just one dude who can't die because he has to be alive to make this prophecy make sense, right? Um, and it seems sort of like what John's doing is he's just trying to take that off the table. You've heard it said that Jesus said at least one person's going to stay. Like, that's not actually what he said, right? So again, it's like a clean-up move. Now, a lot of people have argued that John is a first-hand account because we've got this beloved disciple, right? And it says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So, is it that the text itself is claiming to be a first-hand source? Well, number one, even if it makes that claim, I think an, a sort of an analysis of the narrative shows that it's not. But I actually don't think that's what the narrative's claiming here. You recall there was the bit with the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier, sorry, I keep promoting him, where it was like, he stabbed him with the spear, and we know this is true because he wrote it down, and we know that he believed what he was saying, so you should believe it too, right? The authors are sensitive to the question, where are you getting your information from, right? Now, I think with Mark, through most of the Gospel, he's not that sensitive to that, because I think Mark is working with sources that are from the disciples. Why do I think that? Because we know there were people who knew Jesus during his life, namely Peter and James, right? We have direct first-hand testimony to that in Paul, and that they were running the church in Jerusalem for at least another 20 years after his death, right? And so, are they alive in 70 when Mark's writing? Maybe not. But that over the course of a 20, 30 years of running a church, spreading, you know, Jesus' message and so on, it's, you know, we, we have the sort of testimony, and I don't think it's exactly right of, like, how they came to be compiled, but something like that probably happened, right? There was, like, they were writing down the sayings that they could remember from him. Um, you know, we have this story with the the 
Quran and so on, where everyone who knew Muhammad comes together and they're all like, he said this right, and they all have to like agree on what was the right phrasing. I don't know, I'm speculating, but something like that happened, right? Mark is sort of like okay with that. Except when he gets to the end. When he gets to the end, he's really careful to show his sources. John, I think, is a lot further out, and I think he's making up a lot more, right? Or giving us stuff that has evolved since then. And so John is more sensitive with the sources, and John is saying it's this disciple who wrote it down. I don't think he's saying, the disciple is me, I'm the one writing it. He's saying there was a written testimony, we know it's true, and that's what all this is based off of. I think it's a statement of sourcing, not a statement of authorship. And finally, the way the gospel ends always kind of cracks me up. And like sometimes I just kind of like find things funny, and I can't really explain why I find them funny. But like, now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. End quote. It's just <laughs> like <laughs> how would you say that in like academic ease? There are many other issues pertaining to this that are beyond the scope of this paper. Just like a sort of dressed up way of saying, and I can't be bothered to write anymore. <laughs> I don't know, it just it kind of just tickles me. Okay. Those are our five sources on the resurrection. I think it's kind of interesting and fun to just look at them and think about them, right? What I've done is I've used the chronology, which I tried to develop in the Gospels episode, to try and place them in context. And I've sort of tried to argue through practice that, by showing you it, in other words, that the chronology is kind of the key to unlocking this. I said at the beginning, what actually happened here? Right? What actually happened? We don't know, we can't know, we'll never know, but let's speculate. What actually happened? Here's my first big move that I want to make. And there's no, like, one bit of evidence that's going to be conclusive for it. But I think having done all of that, you'll get it now. At least you'll get why I'm convinced by that move. I don't think we have five sources here. I think we have two. I think we have Mark and Paul, and I think that's it. I think the other two synoptics and John are both just a series of layers on top of Mark. I don't think there's anything in there that is indicative of there being another source. And that source could just be oral transmission, it could be another written source. Like I say, there, is, there are other sources here. There's other sources in the life of Jesus, this Q document, hypothetical document still. I think there's other sources behind Acts of the Apostles that we no longer have. Um, I think there's other sources beyond Mark and Q about Jesus' life that we no longer have. Well, I mean, some people have argued this is contested that Thomas, which is a non-canonical gospel, is quite early. Who knows? Maybe, let's say, it's quite early. It doesn't have any resurrection stuff in it. 
or if it speaks to the resurrection, it does so cryptically and obliquely, but we don't have any direct, this is what the body looks like, it's flesh and blood, or it's a pneuma, right? So, you know, I think there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of sources everywhere for this, but when it comes to the resurrection, there are only two. There's Paul, who is a purported eyewitness, and there's Mark, who is, I think, probably not the first person to sort of write down stuff about Jesus. I think he might be the first to put it in narrative form. That's a guess, but anyway. And so I think what we can do, here's a nice way of telling you we've just wasted the last two hours, is I think when you're asking what really happened here, we can, we can not largely, we can totally dispense with Matthew, Luke, and John. I think those are either copying Mark directly, in which case we might as well just go back to Mark, or they're adding stuff to Mark for the variety of reasons that we explored, either to try and make it more credible, to answer objections, to sort of get some of their own theology in there, or as we saw with John, to just make the story more interesting, to add a bit of dialogue, you know. But none of that helps us... Well, it helps us because we can see... It helps us understand how beliefs about this grew and changed over the course of the first hundred years of Christianity. If we're writing a story of the Jesus movement, this is all useful information. For instance, you know, when particular ideas and doctrines developed. But in terms of, like, the what actually happened, it's Paul and it's Mark, and that's it. That's my first big claim here. We have two sources here. And isn't it kind of telling that out of the universe of potential sources, and like I've said, I think there's, there's many that we don't have, we only have two. I'll come back to that point. Paul, I think he's telling the truth. I think he believes he's telling the truth. He believes he saw something. Although he seems to struggle a little bit to explain to us what it is. What do we make of Mark? Just assessing it on its own terms, without any of the stuff that gets added in, and I believe it was added in, by the later Gospels. So I turned this over in my head for a long time. And appropriately enough, perhaps, I was sort of lying awake in bed, just turning this over, because again, this is apparently what I'm doing with my life. I should say, my wife got quite troubled by the fact that I had a Bible on my bedside table and was reading it before sleep, and she's like, you're not, you're not converting on me, are you? And I was like, no, 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 God, no, 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 I'm... Uh, I'm thinking about the synoptic problem, and I suppose, once again, she despairs of who she married. But I'm sort of thinking about this, and I lay awake for a few hours and turned it over, and this is after weeks of thinking about it, and it just came to me, and it was completely obvious, right? Um, and I remember feeling really almost quite dispirited and a bit deflated once I realised it, because it's not... Once you get it, you get it, right? And the bit that did it for me was the final sentence of Mark. 
and they told no one, for they were afraid. Now, there's so much written about the end of Mark, because it's such a weird ending, isn't it? Um, they told no one, for they were afraid. Right? And, you know, we talked about, well, is this a narrative thing? Is it meant to end there? Is, is it like these big, 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 big questions? And I think sometimes we've spent so long thinking about these texts, and so, they're so important to people, that you sometimes miss the most mundane meanings of it. I've been arguing throughout that a lot of what we see here is that the author's trying to answer, explain, dismiss certain ideas that are in, like, um... Yeah, common discourse, right? Jesus, Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. Yes, he did. This Roman centurion speared him, and he wrote it down. And he knows that he's right, and you know, you can know it too. It's like, what, what's that verse doing there? There's all sorts of theology about the spear. When the Crusaders went to the Holy Land and you know, did all sorts of horrible things, they supposedly found the spear, and it caused a miracle for them, and helped them win a battle, and they brought it back. And you know, there's so much built on all of this, right? But where did that story actually come from? It comes from the fact that the author of John wants to convince his audience of it, right? So what's, they told no one for they were afraid. What's the author actually doing there? He's explaining to you why you haven't heard that story before. Why hasn't his audience heard that story before? It's a bit dispiriting, isn't it, because he made it up. There wasn't an empty tomb. What happened to Jesus' body, we don't know. I'm going to guess it probably wasn't left up on the cross, or at least for, not for any longer period of time, because that might have been something people remembered that sort of contradicted this. Probably didn't get a tomb. Like I said, most people probably wouldn't. Just disposed of, tossed in a pet somewhere, most likely, right? Mark doesn't expect his audience to know any of this. Why don't they know any of this? Because it's, this isn't a story that's been in circulation yet. Why not? Because he's making it up. He's not, to be fair to Mark, he's not just inventing it for the sake of it. Now, you'll recall when we looked at Paul's account, which predates Mark by about 20 years, there was kind of a formula. These things which I first taught to you, which I received myself as of first importance, right? That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. Now, Paul doesn't flesh in any details of that. There's no narrative attached to it. And when he says buried, there's no detail on where, why, if there was an empty tomb or not, right? Mark knows that. I don't know if Mark knew Paul. Or at least I don't have direct evidence that he did. He might, he might not have, right? But the fact that Paul got that formula from someone else, I think means it was in wide circulation. So it's quite possible that both Mark 
and Paul got it from someone else. Let's say Peter. I'm not sure it was Peter historically, but he's as good a candidate as anybody. It could well have been Peter. Um, or Peter passed it on to someone who passed it on to Mark. Although this was just the sort of thing every Christian knew, right? Now, Mark, I think, has something a bit like a list of sayings. He's got stuff he's been told. Um, remember in one of our earliest accounts of gospel composition, they said, oh, they wrote down the sayings of Jesus, but not in order. And then someone put them in order. But maybe Mark has a few, maybe he has one. But like I said, I think there would have been documents recording the sayings of Jesus, maybe re recording short stories about him. Mark is prompted by the destruction of the temple to write his gospel, because he thinks that that is the sign of the coming apocalypse. And the more I think about what they believed about the apocalypse at the time, i.e. it was an earthly apocalypse that was going to be both divine conflict and human conflict. Yeah, this would have, like, tracked, right? It's quite, given what Mark believed about the world, that the temple being destroyed would be a sign of the apocalypse is pretty rational, really, um, given what he was primed to believe. So he works through his story. He's got his sources. And again, Mark doesn't have all the birth narratives. He just, he's got his life of Jesus. He's got his sayings. There's, an, there's other sayings lists out there that Mark isn't aware of, namely Q. And he's like, I need to spread the good news of Jesus. You know, the Evangelium. Let, let me try and get this in a compelling form. Because, like, if I'm just going around with, like, a list of stuff, like, that's not compelling, is it, to someone who doesn't already believe? Here's a slightly list of cryptic things that some crucified guy 50 years ago said. People are going to be like, well, okay, thanks, dude. But, like, in case you haven't noticed, important stuff is going on here. So Mark wants to put it all into a compelling story. And to be fair, he succeeds. He, he nails it, really. Mark is a compelling story. I think it was written quite fast. But the fact that it's sloppy, that it makes spelling and grammar mistakes, that it has inaccuracies in, like, its ge geography and scriptural citations, doesn't change the fact that it has real narrative power. And it's building and it's building and it's building to this moment. Mark knows Jesus gets arrested. Like I say, I think the arrest in Gethsemane, there's some history behind that. There's some weird discrepancy to be solved with Judas. But again, that there are weird discrepancies in terms of, like, was it 11 or was it 12, in many ways enhances its credibility for me. The fact that it's not tidied up, as it is in later Gospels. Because, like, yeah, history is messy and there's conflicting accounts. That, in many ways, doesn't stop me thinking that's true. I think probably... Someone did use a sword in Gethsemane. I don't think Jesus healed it afterwards, and as we saw that he healed it afterwards, is something that gets layered in on top of Mark. And then what happens is Mark's sources stop. What does he have to go on after that? He knows that he was condemned by the Jewish council. He knows that he was sentenced to die under Pontius Pilate. He knows that because he knows this formula that Paul knows, that he was crucified, buried, and risen on the third day. But that's all he's got to go on. So he fills in the blanks. Right? He writes a very brief story 
of Jesus getting condemned by the council, a very brief story of him getting sentenced by Pilate, in which Jesus says nothing. Why does he say nothing? Because the author doesn't know what happened there. So he just has him say nothing, and as later writers take Mark's story, they'll lay a dialogue into that. But the, uh, the one source we have, which it's all based on, that's all he's got. So he's like, okay, that happened. <sighs> now he's got to do, and he has to do this really, right? But it's a central bit of the face of first importance that he was crucified, buried, rose on the third day. And no one's encountered the problem that Mark's trying to work through here because no one's tried to put it in narrative form before. But he has a problem. How does he know any of this? Well, he doesn't, not really. But he's not just going to write, and I have no clue what happened, but, you know, here's a guess. Like, he wants to convince people of this. Now, he knows historically that the disciples fled. I think that's true. I think that happened. And I think that's why we don't know anything, right, about the, the, the what happened, because there weren't there's no, there's sources from Jesus' life that filter through into Mark. There's not sources that filter through about the death, because the disciples weren't there. So the author has a problem. How does he solve it? He puts the women there. Maybe the women were there for the crucifixion, but here's why I think no. Is at the crucifixion, he says, they were there but they were observing from a distance. And you'll notice they get closer as the stories go on. And in John, they're right up at the cross having a discussion with Jesus. In Mark, they're withdrawn. And I wonder, because Mark, like I say, it's just at the point where there could be someone alive who remembers it. I wonder, it's speculation, but why are they withdrawn? Why are they not there in the crowd? They're watching from a distance. Is it possible that Mark is preempting someone, saying, "Well, I was there. I didn't see the. I didn't see all these Marys." Just a thought, and I don't really like this read, but I think it's the right one. And I don't like it because I don't like to sort of diminish female agency in stories like this when we don't sort of have much of it to go on. I guess what I'd say is if you want evidence of female leadership in the early church, you do have evidence that the Marys were important during Jesus' life. I think they were real people. Um, and then we do have evidence from Paul, like I say, that there were female apostles. That's the historical evidence that you've got. If you want to take a more literalist read of the Bible, then yeah, it was the women in all four Gospels, right? But why are they there? I think ultimately they're there because that's who Mark has to hand, right? He's sort of thinking, who can I say was the witness to this? And it's the Marys. And you do notice the Marys, who, who was their changes in all the stories, right? I think that's just, just, like I say, I think this gospel was written in a rush. And I think he fleshes out the story a bit, which is to say he makes it up. And he puts witnesses there. Now notice something. I cannot be the first person to think about this, to, to have thought this, but at the very least I claim to have thought of it independently. I bet someone else must have had this interpretation. You remember I said it's a three-part formula. Died, buried, raised. 
Well, for each part of that, Mark writes a short couple of paragraphs, right? It's not extensive. For each part of that, he says, okay, so I know he died. Let me write a death scene. I know he was buried. Let me write a burial scene. And I know he was raised. I don't know what this looks like, but let me write something that speaks to that. Why don't we see Jesus in Mark? I think Mark doesn't know what, 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 how to write that. I think he, he hasn't seen the resurrected Jesus himself. He knows that other people have. And he doesn't quite know what they're on about, as we don't quite know what Paul is on about. And so he kind of doesn't trust himself to write that bit, so he writes the resurrection that way. But here's the thing. There's three blocks which I think correspond to died, buried, resurrected. Each one ends with a sourcing statement. So the died, we get the narrative about Jesus from the cross, then there's a couple of sentences on the end saying, and the women were there observing at a distance. Buried, we get the Joseph of Arimathea story, puts him in the tomb, rolls the rock shut. And then there's this thing of, and the women saw it. Now, is it just me? Is that, that's just like, it just doesn't feel plausible, right? That like, the, 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 oh, they just happened to be there and see that or whatever. It's, it's clearly an insertion to explain where the stories come from, because the story's made up. Then finally, resurrected. Mark's a little bit less confident with this one, right? But he does it too. And then that one too ends with, and they did not tell anyone for they were afraid. And so it, they, all three of them are capped by sourcing statements. And when you put it in that context, the ending of Mark isn't as strange as you might think it is, right? They didn't tell anyone for they were afraid. What a weird way to end. Unless you sort of track back and pick it apart and think you've got died, buried, resurrected. Each one is, has a short story, and each one has a sourcing statement at the end. That's just the sourcing statement for the resurrection. And he's doing two things with it. This is how we know, but also this is why you don't know. This is why you haven't heard this, is because they didn't tell anyone. Now, there's a problem for Mark, isn't there, in that if his audience hadn't heard this because the women never told anyone, then how does he know? You could come up with an answer, um, but you'd, you'd be doing what the later Gospels do of trying to, like, enhance Mark for credibility, right? Um, so for resurrection, and then, so, but so, so why doesn't the story go on? Well, in many ways, it seems weird to us that the story ends there, because we're used to hearing things that come after it. But Mark isn't. His audience isn't. They, they don't know about all this other stuff, because it hasn't been invented yet. So it, it perhaps wouldn't be as weird to them that the story ended there. And so, okay, to this idea that maybe Mark's writing a bit of a prequel to the resurrection appearances that, that we hear in Paul, well, maybe 
Or maybe Mark just does sort of think the story ends there. Now, it's set up to go on, right? The, the disciples have fled, and presumably the resurrection appearances, when they happened, happened in Galilee. Although the disciples just went home. They were from that area of the world anyway, right? Um, but Mark doesn't know a lot about that. He doesn't have, like, detailed accounts of, like, what Jesus said when he came back or whatever. Um, he's taken the story as far as he thinks he can. He's done the life of Jesus, for which he does have sources. And he, he knows it ends with the trials and the crucifixion. And he's correct. I think those things happened. They're just not directly witnessed anywhere. And then he's got this, like I say, formula of died, buried, resurrected that he has to account for. And so he accounts for it, and he introduces a reasonably common trope for someone becoming a god in the ancient world, which is their tomb is empty. A reasonably common writing trope at the time. There's nothing, there's nothing like super inventive even about what Mark has done here. But he doesn't know about like, you know that. And how do? What's my evidence for that? That like surely this would be something every Christian knew is like what Jesus said when he came back. But we have, like, first-hand sourcing that they probably didn't. Like, Paul gives, like, a list of appearances, but he doesn't give any colour. He doesn't give any detail. You don't get any of these stories about, like, what Jesus said when he came back. Paul claims to have seen the risen Jesus, and that's all he really cares to say about it. So, is it that wild to... I mean, it seems wild to us, because we think, well... There must have been, like, long accounts of what happened when Jesus came back. Maybe there just wasn't. Maybe people were claiming to have seen him. And they weren't... It wasn't, like, a long story. It was just appearances. Maybe these things were very, very, very brief. Sort of get that feeling from Paul, right? The way the story's told. Seems like it just sort of happened. I'll come back to that. But... Maybe Mark just sees it as his role to cover Jesus. He knows it has to end with this formula, but he doesn't know a lot of any sort of level of detail about the resurrection appearances, because when it's being reported, and we have it from a first-hand source, it's not being reported in any sort of colour or narrative detail. And as we saw, as sources get layered onto Mark, there's actually a slight hesitancy about what they have Jesus say when he comes back. Mark doesn't have him in at all. And is it just me, or are Matthew and Luke quite terse? We go through all this thing in Matthew of Jesus coming back, and then he just basically reiterates the Great Commission. Get a little bit more in Luke, but in terms of what he actually conveys, it's the usual stuff that he's been saying throughout the Gospel of Luke, and that, you know, as you would have it, just seems to be a rehash of the central points of the theology of the author of Luke Acts, which tells me that this, like I say, is just a layering onto Mark. It's not an independent source. We're not looking at some testimony from the time of what Jesus said. Because I don't think there's testimony from the time of Jesus really saying much of anything when he came back. That doesn't mean that people didn't believe it, and I'll get back to that. But I think Mark is, yeah, just setting it up so that, like, you know, he's going to come back in Galilee and so on. 
And that's it. I think to Mark, the story's done. But for more mundane reasons, almost, than we conventionally think about it. And like I say, it's... <laughs> it feels a little disappointing, doesn't it, to reach that terminal point. I think a lot of people who study this are Christians. And I don't want to accuse people of being, like, overtly biased. I don't think they're being dishonest, I'll put it that way. But I think people struggle to let go of the empty tomb. Like, a lot of the, the lectures on the historic Jesus do sort of try and talk about what was the reality of this and sort of what happened and so on. We don't have four sources on the empty tomb. We have one. And I think when you put it in context and just do a read of what the author's doing, it becomes clear. And even from, like, like I said, when I first cracked, cracked, this implies I've discovered something new. Plenty of people think this is invented. That's not original to me at all. Um, but when it became clear in my mind that that was the right answer, I must admit, I did feel a bit deflated. And I, I don't know, you sort of want there to be a there there, something there. There is a there there, but it's not that. It's not the empty tomb. And it's a bit like you've got all these hermeneutic tools and digging through the text, and there's actually not really anything at the bottom of it. You want your tools to be doing some use and actually digging something up, right? Um, but it does just make the most sense. And it's not just the textual read I've done of Mark. If the story I've told you is right, then so many of the big questions I was asking of Paul's account that seemed like real head-scratchers just suddenly start slamming into place. Where are the women in Paul's account? Well, they weren't part of the account back then. Why doesn't Paul know that the women were present at the um, crucifixion, the resurrection, whatever? Because they weren't. Where's the ascension in Paul's account? That idea hasn't been invented yet. It won't be invented for another 40 years. We're a generation out of people thinking up this idea. Why doesn't Paul seem to know about the empty tomb? Because there wasn't an empty tomb. Paul knows that Jesus was buried, but buried could mean any number of things. It doesn't have to mean this sort of cave, catacomb type thing. Could mean anything. Paul probably doesn't seem to know that Jesus was buried. And also, by the way, let's just track this. If there was an empty tomb, and Peter went there, and saw that it was empty, and then saw Jesus again, <laughs> wouldn't this have kind of become a thing? Wouldn't Christians have sort of visited there? Like, if you converted to this church, and, you know, you're getting introduced to the faith, and you're talking to Peter, and you're in Jerusalem, which Peter is in Jerusalem for at least the next 20 years, do you not think he might show someone, such as Paul, the tomb? And be like, look, you probably want to see this with your own eyes, right? Let me show you the tomb. Would it not have become a site of Christian prayer and veneration. And like I say, there is a tomb that's identified as Jesus' tomb, but it, that probably isn't, almost certainly isn't historical, right? 
would this not have become a thing? Wouldn't Paul, when he's writing his letters, be like, yeah, I went to Jerusalem, chilled out with Peter. Oh, while I was there, I saw, I saw, the, I saw the tomb. That, that sort of, like, would be... If Paul was there, I think he would have wanted to see it. And if he'd seen it, I think he would have written about it. Why doesn't he? Because it, there wasn't one. Jesus wasn't buried in a tomb like that. It's not proof positive, but ultimately, what is more likely, right? If you accept my analysis that we only have one source for the empty tomb, which is Mark, what is more likely, ultimately? That Mark expects his audience not to have heard of this, but somehow he's gotten that information? That but that people before him didn't know it, and the people who are named in the later Gospels as knowing it and as having gone there don't tell anyone that? Like, Peter doesn't tell Paul that? I mean, Peter doesn't like Paul, so maybe he kept it from him or something. Maybe, sure, you can come up with a story. But all of it just starts crashing into place, doesn't it? So what's happened? Was a guy called Jesus, apocalyptic Jewish prophet, Preaching the coming apocalypse, runs afoul of the religious authorities, is arrested by them, maybe in a place called Gethsemane, maybe betrayed by someone called Judas, maybe there's a bit of violence when that happens. Yeah, those are like, not for sure, but you know, something like that. His disciples flee, and they go back home. They're from that part of the world anyway, right? And he's executed probably body just disposed of. Sometime after, it, you know, we don't have to accept the chronology that the later Gospels give us as to when the resurrection happened. Supposedly within three days, that seems to have been part of it. So maybe these resurrection appearances happen as they are on their way to Galilee, maybe in Galilee. I don't think you could do that journey in three days then. How long did they last? How many people were affected? Seemingly quite a few. Not just the twelve, but other people as well. They come back to Jerusalem, which must have taken some bravery, right? They've become convinced by this. They start preaching this, setting up like their own sect. I don't think you could call it like a new religion yet. And they get in trouble with the authorities again. Some of them get killed, maybe in the way described in Acts, maybe not, who knows. This guy called Saul, Paul, comes along, and he's uh, a bit of a precocious young youth in, you know, rising ahead of his years in Judaism, he tells us. And he starts trying to, you know, shut this down. And then Paul sees the same thing. And he changes his entire life because of it. Twenty years down the road, Paul has been spreading this to all sorts of non-Jews, bringing them into this. He writes about his experiences firsthand in a way that's pretty confusing to us, but he seems to be claiming a direct encounter with a being that is not recognisably human. And that what he saw was the same thing as what the others saw who he's in contact with and he's met. 
Another 20 years go by. The end of the world hasn't come yet, but Paul says, you know, it'll come like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's coming, but it's coming soon. Paul's dad, maybe early 60s, he's executed in Rome. Let's just say Peter and James are also dead. And something's happened to James. Maybe he's fell out, left the church. Don't know. But Peter will be remembered. Paul will be remembered. 70. The Jewish war, the temple is destroyed. There's recollections of his life. There's this idea that he was raised as of first importance. Mark writes his gospel, doesn't really know how to end the gospel, and makes some stuff up. What he made up then has people over the next 40 years or so layering stuff on top of it to try and make it more credible, to try and fill in the holes, to try and get their own theological points in there. To try and answer what people have said when they heard the story of Mark. Which is why you probably weren't looking in the tomb right, were you? Oh, that geezer Jesus, he probably, probably didn't even really die. But he got buried by mistake, just got up again. So a lot of the story is just like literally answering what people have said. And then some amalgam of those various layers becomes our conventional account of what happened. And further layers will get added on. If you're in the Anglican Church, you believe that when Jesus died, he he went down to hell and preached to the sinners and then came back up again. That's part of the creed. Not in the Bible, but it's part of the creed. So you can trace the layers coming in, but that's what we can say about the history. But okay, but what did they see? Because I think they saw something. And Okay, so I said it's sort of dispiriting that actually (laughs) what really happened here is perhaps a little bit more mundane. But but then if he gets killed, the disciples flee. You'd expect that to be the end of the story, wouldn't you? They fled. Why did they come back? Paul was persecuting them. Why did he stop, right? What did they see? And here, I think there's perhaps a bit of an all-round reluctance from people coming at this from various different perspectives to sort of think seriously through the types of visual experiences people can have, or the types of sensory experiences people can have. And I think probably part of that reluctance comes from stigmas around them, and of people not really just reasoning from ignorance, I think. So, I think people, are, people don't want to say that they were, like, seeing things or hallucinating, because, because that would seem to be saying something bad about the sources. You know, I don't think anyone sort of wants to land at, like, well, Paul was mentally ill. Right, that that doesn't sound right. Um, people might say, um, let's let's sort of put some arguments to this. Paul was an intelligent, composed, um, very purposeful man. This, and it, it, if you look at his life or his letters, this just just not read like a paranoid schizophrenic or something like that. Um, I'm not sure someone with the type of profound mental illness to the point where they are seeing and hearing things, right? 
would be capable of doing what Pauls did. What is more, and these are arguments people have put forward, um, mental illnesses of the type that produce extreme visual or auditory hallucinations tend to be things that last people's, for very long periods of time. So people with psychosis often, which is um, a common symptom, is the hearing of voices. It can also be um, visual hallucinations as well. Um, that, that can run their entire lives, and even with modern medicine and, you know, treatments and so on, a lot of the drugs that are given will suppress the symptoms, they won't eliminate them entirely. And what is more, and people just make this argument and then move on, they'll say, well, when people hallucinate, that's an individual thing, it's not communal, and people don't all see the same thing. Again, remember, Paul thinks he's seen the same thing as Peter, and he's talked to Peter, so have they, like, compared notes at some point? We're speculating, but you'd sort of assume they kind of have a little bit, right? If they spent a certain amount of time together. And it's, it's not, like, selective. It doesn't just happen, you know, certain mental illnesses or whatever are distributed across the population. They don't happen to a particular group of people in a particular time and place. Now. These are all arguments I've heard against the idea. Um, and it just, I guess I just sort of heard them and heard them, but every single one of those is wrong. For a start, I don't think we have to think about what they saw as quote-unquote a mental illness. You know, I'm not even making a social justice point about, like, maybe we should um, use a label like, you know, differently abled or something like that. There may, it may very well be merits to using that label, I'm not arguing against it either. Um, I'm saying plenty of people have really profoundly real experiences who are not, by our modern standards, mentally ill. And it's absolutely the case that these experiences can be shared by people. Take, for instance, and I'm not saying that this is what it was, I'm saying this is just an example of the type of things that your brain can do. Take, for example, the case of sleep paralysis, uh, sometimes called night terrors, still not honestly something that's super well understood. And if you haven't heard about it, I'll sort of break it down for you. And I think when I describe it, you'll sort of think what I thought when I first heard about it, which is, it's like a very vivid nightmare. Um, and unless you experience it yourself, it's really difficult to explain the extent to which that just isn't the case. So, without being, like, too specific, um, I, I've known people, you know, a couple of girlfriends, for instance, who've had this, um, and they told me about it in some detail, and what they described is, it's like you've woken up, but things from the dream are still with you, not always pleasant things, and again, I sort of thought it, it Okay, so you had a really vivid nightmare, and I'm sure it was very unpleasant. And again, 
until it happens to you, it's really impossible to describe the extent to which that is not the case. And so, sometime after, this was about seven years ago now, I saw one of the things. Um, I saw the old hag. Now, so this is what's interesting about sleep paralysis, is it's not like everyone's seeing different stuff. There's about five or six different things that people see, and people, like, it's the same things. There's, like, a particular man, there's, like, the old hag, there's a few different ones, right? And almost everyone who experiences this, which is quite a lot of people, is seeing one of a few, like, things, or one of a few, like, archetypes. Um, as best as I can, here's sort of what it's like. The phenomenal, phenomenological experience of this is like, it's just not a dream. Like, when you're dreaming, you're in a very just different state of perception, right? It's much vaguer, it goes from your memory really quickly. Um, when you're dreaming, usually, right, when you're having a nightmare, once you realise it's a nightmare, you can kind of wake yourself up from it. As soon as you twig that it's not really happening, it almost gives you like an exit button. Here's what a night terror is. You wake up, you are in your room, you're not somewhere else. Dreams often take place in a different location, or like an invented location, right? You are in the room that you went to sleep in, and it is as real as the room around you is right now. The sensory experience is exactly the same, but there is something else in the room with you. And it's not, like, abstract or translucent. It is a thing that is there. And um, the old, so the old hag is, a lot of people have had this, and you can see it in medieval paintings. So apparently it's something that went back quite a long way. Um, it's um, an old woman with a really wizened, quite unsettling face on your chest looking you in the face quite closely, and you can feel the weight on your chest. And it's as real as a real person being there. Um, and then you wake up. But when you wake up, you don't suddenly snap to and you're back in your room because you were always in your room. And again, I think what you'll hear there as I describe that is a really bad nightmare. And I think, unless, you, unless it happens to you, you really just don't get how real it can be. Now, well, say what you will about me. Um, I've never suffered from any sort of other sorts of mental illness. The people I've been talking about, I mean, I've been depressed at times and stuff, right? But not, not anything that has hallucinations or anything. Um, the other people I've known who've experienced this haven't. It's not like a quote-unquote disorder. And maybe disorder, like I say, isn't the right word for, say, schizophrenics or whatever, either. But it's just something that can happen to any of us. And here's what's really interesting about these. Is they're contagious. There's a documentary film about it which has very mixed reviews, but I thought it was a useful explainer of it, called The Nightmare. 
and it sort of goes through and it tries to like visually reenact what happens because some people experience it a bit and it goes i only ever experienced it once and it's a strong enough thing like i say it's as phenomenologically real as what you are perceiving right now that it stays with you it's not like dreams where you just forget them um but some people experience it all the time through their whole lives um, and one of the things that came out again and again in this documentary said, so yeah, I was telling my friend about it, whatever, and they just didn't believe me. And then a few nights later, they said, oh my God, it happened to me. So merely hearing about it, even if you don't really like believe it, can prompt it. And often prompt like the same characters. Now, the thing I didn't like about that movie, and I'd probably recommend a bit of caution on watching it, is I think the person making it and a lot of the people interviewed really did seem to think that there was an these these were actual things, um, like actual demons, um. Which is easy, again, easy to dismiss if you're merely thinking of this as a vivid nightmare. Um, so, for instance, a lot of people started bringing in claims about, like, alternate universes and some of the sort of research that's done at the cutting edge of physics that, like, maybe we were in a multiverse. And they sort of speculated that maybe, you know, this is where the universes run together and things from the other universe are coming in, which would explain why people tend to see the same things. Um, I don't buy any of that. I think that, that sort of, the experience feels so real, you reach for an explanation of it. Um, and I think twofold. I sort of think, one, it's just not what's happening, and two... In many ways, no matter how real the experience is, really believing that it is just in your head is kind of like the way out of it. Um, so for a few people I've known, what sort of eventually got them through it was, and made them stop, was just really telling yourself, this is not real. It is something my brain is doing to me, and I don't need to be scared of it. And that almost kind of it's not one for one, it doesn't work for everybody, but that can take away its power a bit. And I think for me, like, my reaction was so, like, you know, heart-going, <laughs> whatever. But then I was like, shit, my brain can actually do that. That's kind of cool, actually. And if there were demons, the demons were just like, well, this guy's a weirdo even for us, we're not coming back there. Um, <laughs> but... I think there's something about this of, like, at some level you have to give yourself permission to believe. And that permission can come in the form of someone telling you, I saw this thing, and it was so, so real. And even if you don't believe it, even if at a conscious level you're like, okay, well that sounds crazy, at some level you've absorbed that this is possible. I think that, I'm purely speculating, I think that's sort of how the contagion thing works. Um, because, you know, we are social creatures, um, and that's not always a bad thing, but I think 
other people, we, we just know from all sorts of social science that other people believing in things gives us a sort of permission to believe it. And I think this is just a really, really weird case of that. And I think, you know, I say it's as real as, like, real life, but let, let's be clear, real life, what you're seeing, is not, quote-unquote, what's really there. You know, stuff like colours aren't properties of the, the things you're seeing, they're properties of what, like, how light refracts off it or something, right? Um, and we know all the time that you're actually only perceiving a very small amount of the world around you, and your brain is kind of like running a simulation, right? And then when you dream, your brain can run a very different type of simulation with different rules, but it's not going 100%. It's, it's like I say, it's, it's patchy and there's holes in it and whatever. Um, apparently, in states between waking and consciousness, um, your brain can start running its normal simulation, i.e. the real room as it really is around you, but then just simulate something that isn't there in the same way it does in your dreams, but not with the dream rendering, but with the real world rendering. That is apparently something our brains can do. Is this what was happening back then? I, maybe, maybe not, right? I just use that as an example to kind of debunk all of that argument that just got made that this can't have just been, like, hallucinations or stuff that people were seeing. And I think just even, like, using that language can be a bit dismissive about, like I say, what your brain can render. Because just in the case I've given, this isn't something that occurs throughout people's lives. It can be limited, as it was for me, to one instance, or a short series of instances. It is, unlike people saying, well, people don't, like, see the same thing. They absolutely do. And it does sort of occur within set communities. Like I say, there's a contagious element to it. I'll give you another example. Um, people who believe they've been visited by aliens. Now, again, this is very, very easy to dismiss as just, like, quacks or whatever, right? Or charlatans who are trying to sell some alien merch or whatever. And I'm sure there's, there's plenty of that in it. Um, I was watching a while ago, and I, I, I looked for it in making this, and I couldn't find it again. But a documentary interviewing people who believed that they'd been visited by aliens. And there was this very, very nice, sensible-sounding older woman who was sort of talking us through it. Um, and she explained, usually alien visitations occur, in, you know, her words, occur at night. Or, and she specifically said, between waking and sleeping. She said, often they'll visit the same people again and again, but sometimes they won't. And she said, they'll often occur within a particular community or within a particular group of people who know each other. And she said, we, people will generally tend to report that the aliens look the same. And that was, for her, what was convincing about this, was everyone reports the same thing. And 
this is sort of where our image comes from, right? Of like humanoid but not quite, big head, big eyes, the proverbial little green men. A detail the sort of first hand witnesses to this all shared, but which doesn't make it through to our image, is very long fingers. Um and again, I don't think it's being dismissive of the person. It is I just immediately sort of tracked it to what I knew about sleep paralysis and thought, oh, well, this is some variant of that, right? It's maybe not the same thing, but just sort of granting. And again, my argument that this is something the brain can do is just based on listening to the lived experiences of people whose brains have done it. Um, yeah, it's... It's maybe sort of on a spectrum with this. It's maybe a slightly different thing. But once you grant that this is something the brain can do, particularly something it can do around the period between waking and sleeping, it's, it's by no means... It's, you know, yeah, they probably did see these things and they probably were as real to you, as real to them, as, you know, the next person you talk to is going to be real to you. Right? And what are we to make of the fact that people see the same thing? Because this is what does it for people, and this is why they believe that, like, it's beings from another dimension, or an alternate universe, or that it's aliens, or whatever, is people are seeing the same thing. I, I honestly don't know. Um, you could imagine it's an, there's some sort of argument that there are these sorts of archetypes buried just deep in our heads for whatever reason. Or, again, we're social animals. Maybe even if we don't realise it, we've sort of picked up these images and descriptions from the culture around us subconsciously and become primed in some way. Because you do, when I say little green men, you can sort of picture something, right? Even when I say something like old hag, a certain image comes to mind, right? Not sure. Not an expert. On this, I'm not sure anyone is an expert. I'm more just reasoning from lived experience, as they say. Now, if I then ask, okay, so is this your explanation? for the resurrection, we sort of get onto this question of, did people in the ancient world, well, for one, did they experience mental illness, or two, if they did, did they experience it in the same way as us? I covered this a little bit in the context of discussing ancient warfare in my Ideologies of the Ancients episodes, um, and there's kind of two extremes, and I guess my intuition is to land somewhere between those extremes. So to take the case of war, there's been a view for a while that things like PTSD, or in the First World War they used to say things like shell shock, right? That that's a distinctively modern phenomena. And that people, it just didn't happen to people in the ancient world, and they didn't record it. And it often comes with this sort of like machismo idea that people in the ancient world were just tougher and, like, getting, like, so freaked out that you can't operate from a war. That's something that happens to squishy, namby-pamby modern people. Or maybe modern war is just so different, and it lasts longer, 
unlike the, psych- the, the sort of just experience of being shelled over and over and over and over and over again. It's a bit different than a short battle where you all go stab each other. That, you know, the types of responses we see from modern soldiers are distinctive to the very modern circumstances that, that they endured, right? On the other hand, people will say, well, what on earth are you saying that we don't have sources from the ancient world talking about trauma from war? We, ha- we have endless sources from the ancient world talking about war. What is more, when you try and like look at what the symptoms they're saying are, we can actually diagnose them. I think that might be going a bit far too. When you have these very old perhaps partially fabricated, perhaps totally fabricated stories from discrepant and fragmentary sources, sources that may very well have been edited over the years. You know, to think we can get a clinical diagnosis of someone in the ancient world. People, like, sometimes speculate, oh, Nero had this. This was what was up with him. That, to me, that just seems a little bit epistemically overconfident. But the idea that nobody in the ancient world suffered trauma, nobody in the ancient world heard voices? Are you kidding me? We have documentation after documentation that people heard voices. Now, some of that might be made up, probably most, a lot, I don't know how much of it was made up, but some of it probably was, but some of it was probably real, right? To my mind, it's somewhere in between. I think... The metaphor I use, and it's imperfect, is the people back then had the same hardware as us. Their brains were basically built the same. But they did have a very different software running on their brains. And, you know, just like you can say, the, the, all computers have viruses, but with a different software it might present differently. You know, all people have had these sorts of experiences. And I think there's, there's a reasonably good historical case to be made that the way different sorts of perceptual experiences manifest themselves can be quite time and place specific. So there was one of the kings of France, one of the Louis, who um, came to believe that he was made of glass, and if people touched him he would shatter. Which seems pretty wild, and I was interested in this, and I looked into it. And apparently it wasn't unique to him. Because in my head I was thinking, is this some particular, like, delusion that's been brought on by the isolation of total power or something like that? But apparently loads of people had it back then. And there's interviews with people, just like ordinary people, who believed they were made of glass. And it's very rare to basically unheard of now, but apparently at a particular time and place there was a sort of, like, like explosion of this belief. Um, so again, same hardware. Our brain can generate these things. That's a thing it can do. But it generates them under particular, so, particular primings, right? Like I said, we are social creatures. And that priming can be someone telling us about it. It can also be like just the general prevailing social attitudes and beliefs of the time. And remember, 
like I said earlier, we're living in a time when the New Testament is written that there seems to have been a real uptick in beliefs about possession, beliefs about demons, beliefs about visitations from beings that are like not men but also not God. Like I say, it's, it's, the, the New Testament's shot through of it, and it's not really in the old. It seems to be something that's kicked in over, you know, the last century or so in this particular time and place. So, there is a certain priming for this sort of stuff, right? And more than that, if you think about what I said about the contagion element, so let's just start mapping this on, right? So, as a context, as a ground, it seems that belief in sort of direct human pneuma interaction, either being possessed or seeing certain things, has become much more common. Also seems like the belief in resurrection generally has really taken off during this period. Historically, Judaism has had a very loose, abstract sense of the afterlife. And there hasn't been, certainly in the Torah or something, there's not a big focus or really any focus on resurrection. But towards this period, we get a, a belief within Judaism of this, this sort of general resurrection, right? And that takes different forms in different thinkers, but that's something that's sort of in the air at that time. You then get a group of people who are both in a state of trauma and in a state of heightened religious expectation. Yeah, like, it seems to all line up so far. And then Paul, right? You remember I said a lot of people for night terrors, they'll, they'll hear it and say, well, I don't believe it, and then it'll happen to them. And it's not that they heard it, thought, oh, I want that to happen to me, and it did. But at just some level, the fact that you've absorbed that someone else really believes it kind of gives you permission to as well. Paul hears it, he's persecuting these people, he might have talked to them, interviewed them. Acts certainly implies that he did. His own letters sort of imply that he did. They've seen something. They're convinced by it. Paul's not convinced by it, but he becomes convinced that they're convinced. And then he sees it too. That it all sort of lines up. Now, I'm not saying it is the same thing, that they all just had sleep paralysis. Like I say, I think it's something of a middle ground, right? Between saying... They're, they're, you know, the symptoms of PTSD and the, whatever are just completely constant over time, and there's not any cultural variation whatsoever, right? But, se but noticing some of the things our brains can do, and saying that that will manifest in different times and different places in different ways. So if nothing else, I would strongly suspect, I'm just off the deep end with speculation here, but I would strongly suspect that as a matter of hardware, the brain of Paul, the brain of Peter, the brain of James, was capable of simulating things in the room with them to such a degree that they were as phenomenologically real 
as other people. How do I know that? Because our brains are capable of doing that. Um, I would also suspect that their brains are capable of simulating things that might be humanoid in outline, but aren't people, right? How, again, how do I know that? Because I know our brains are capable of doing that. And they're capable of doing it without it being a lifelong pattern. They're capable of doing it maybe even just once. And they're capable of doing it in a way where different people are seeing the same thing. Was what they saw the same sorts of archetypes as the sufferers of modern sleep paralysis? I would suspect not. And what they're describing doesn't seem to neatly fit with any of the archetypes that we know. But it doesn't have to. I suspect the archetypes do change and shift over time. You know, the, the little green men one, which is a slightly cute, too cutesy way of describing what it is people are seeing. But the little green men one seems like quite a modern one, right? But then notice, right, let's draw another analogy. What do modern people do when they see this? Well, some are just uber-rationalists like me. are like, oh, isn't it cool? My brain can do that, you know? Um, but it is so real. I don't, like, I'm not saying anything negative about, like, people who try to put another explanation to it. Well, they go to what are the sort of dominant... Areas of science or knowledge or whatever in our society to try and make sense of this. So I've heard this thing about alternate universes. Maybe that's what's going on. We have a conception of ourselves as a planet surrounded by like stars who might have other planets, and we've all we've, we've speculated for some time about ancient uh, about alien life. A particular archetype that people see becomes aliens, right? And, it, and I mean, if I saw that, uh, the way I would describe it is I, 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 I saw an alien. I would say I don't think it was a real alien. I don't think it was really there, but that's, that's how I'd have to describe it, right? Um, I, the ancient world, I don't think, thinks about aliens. Their cosmology is just completely different. I don't think they think about alternate universes or whatever, but they have their own sort of scientific, as it were, understanding of the world. They have this language, like I've been saying, of pneumas, of demons, of angelic beings. And so, doesn't that then just make sense of Paul? He's come to his first church, he's utterly convinced of this, but as he tells us in Galatians, not with bold words and speeches, but with trembling. Paul is overawed and inspired and will dedicate his life to what he's seen. He's also frightened. I think that verse gets missed a lot sometimes. And so what does he do? Well, as I said, unless you've experienced it, it's very, very difficult to explain it to someone. And you reach for the sort of language and theories and science of the time, like people do with aliens, like people do with alternate universes or demons or whatever. I mean, demons is probably quite an old one. That's the same then as it is now. So Paul, reach, Paul explains it through this language that he's inherited from the time and the place that he's in of pneumas, of resurrected bodies, of the sort of eschaton, 
right? And it feels like Paul's being a bit evasive. But maybe he's actually just sort of doing his best to break this down for you. To break it down for someone who doesn't have the same lived phenomenological experience as he does. And so really, this entire episode has been a long sort of struggle to kind of just take Paul at his word. What did he see? Well, we only have what he told us. Here's what I think. I think what happened then was something not exactly the same as by any stretch, but with perhaps a family resemblance to something like sleep paralysis. Might be a loose family resemblance, might be a close one. Like I say, I don't think they're seeing the same thing, right? When I don't think Jesus was a little green man when he came back or something like that, right? But some, something within that, something that utilises the same hardware that sleep paralysis utilises, like I say, the ability of the brain to render that sort of thing and to, to like, pass it on from person to person. I think it's something that utilises that hardware, but runs it on a different software. A software that's probably quite unique to the time and sort of lost to us now, right? And we can get a sense of it, what it what that sort of software was by, you know, the context that I've been through. What did Paul see? Well, just from the text itself. I think what he saw was physically real. He says it's a body, but it's a body made out of a different type of flesh to human flesh. He has this word pneuma. Now, I went through a big load about, like, this is what pneuma means, and it's kind of like breath or wind or whatever. I wonder if you can go too far down that road. Like, I wonder if people 2,000 years from now were reading the accounts of sleep paralysis, and they'd say, well, what, what are these people talking about? And they'd go away and research, like, what people in our age thought about interstellar travel, or what people about our age thought about multiple universes and so on. And that would be useful contextual information, but it wouldn't quite get you at the experiential heart of it, right? This is the language that, that, that Paul has. He sees something that's physically real. I think it's humanoid, but not human. And again, I, I'm only basing this on what Paul tells us, right? We will be transformed. Paul's come to interpret that as whatever he saw, that is what we are all going to be. The dead, that will grow up out of the dead. Our bodies will be transformed into that, right? It's humanoid, but not human. Another little bit of Galatians we could tie in is it's androgynous. It's neither male nor female. And I think it's light emitting. The language Paul uses is evocative of that. And then, when we get our descriptions of angels, they're dazzling, right? They're sort of blinding, they're difficult to look at. Now, I did say I don't think those adding of angels in is sort of reflecting an earlier source. No, I think what it's reflecting is people kind of had a vague idea of what angels were supposed to look like, 
In the same way as even if you've never had the experience, you have a vague idea of what an alien looks like. It's part of our informal, subconscious social iconography, to make up a long phrase. But just basically to say, people in that time and place sort of knew what, what these beings looked like. In the same way as we sort of know what an alien looks like, you'd still be pretty shocked to meet one. And so again, it's humanoid, but not human. It's physically there. It might be quite scary to look at. And it's in some sense like bioluminescent. Like like it flashes light. I don't all of that's a bit of a guess, but all of it's based on Paul and based on how I've tried to put that in context, which is to say, well, no, hang on, people just say, well, it couldn't possibly all have just been hallucinations. I think hallucinations is the wrong word. I think it's sort of like disparaging. And I don't see why it couldn't have been. Indeed, I think some, something in that universe is, is the most likely explanation. And if you grant me that, which is a big grant, that description I've just given you is what Paul himself is telling us. And I think that probably wasn't a million miles away from what Peter saw, from what James saw, from what 500 people saw. I mean, that number seems really high. But people in groups have seen things as a group. That has happened. And, you know, you might ask, is it, isn't it more likely they just made it all up? Yeah, quite possible. I don't doubt it. Paul's a tricky one to explain if they're all just making it up. That the rest of the disciples are too. They ran away. Why are they now coming back? They are taking a risk here. A lot of, well, according to tradition, right, a lot of them will die because of it. Um, according to tradition, both Peter and Paul will die because of this. Right? Could they have been making it up? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't discount that possibility for a second. My guess? Again, what's more likely? They'll say, oh, you've got this really long, crazy story about people having these experiences. But these experiences are really common. Even in our supposedly rational world, they're really common. And I think perhaps we don't quite do as much with them because we have this whole rational framework to put them in context and reassure ourselves that it's just something I saw. Peter and Paul didn't have that. Do you begrudge them for, like, thinking, like, something was up here? Here's a question. Let's just say I'm right. What did Jesus tell them? People can hear voices, right? Certainly, like I said, I mentioned psychosis. I don't think this was psychosis. Um, it doesn't seem to match that, but you hear voices then that are as real to you as me talking to you now. Um, sleep paralysis can have an auditory component to it. Um, mine didn't, but other people have reported that. Probably something quite basic, right? If it's the sort of category of experience I'm thinking about, these aren't long experiences. They're, they're maybe like 20, 30 seconds maybe a few minutes at most. 
Was it something just as simple as, you know, who are you? What are you? Well, in sleep paralysis, you can't move and you can't talk. That's why it's called sleep paralysis. But like I say, I'm not saying it's exactly that. I'm saying it's within that sort of, it's, it's, it's something within a family resemblance to that. Who are you? What are you? I am Jesus. I am risen. This is, you know, my risen form. And that's it, maybe? There we can only speculate. We don't have Paul recounting, like, a specific words he heard. We do in Acts, but again, I think the Acts story is, like, later on, and I think we need to eye it sceptically. But it might be, but, but Paul does say he's acting under the direction, you know, not of Peter, not of James, but of the Lord. He's been directly commissioned by the Lord to spread the gospel. Is that something he was told? Again, what were Peter and James told? Were they told, I am Jesus, I am risen, go back to Jerusalem and spread the message? Right? We don't know on that case, right? We don't know on any of this, but we really especially don't know on that. But I think, then, that ties up another loose end, in that if these experiences are quite brief, that would sort of explain, would it not, why in the generation after Jesus' death, before Mark was written, we have a reasonable amount of detail on his life. We have sayings, and we, we know that sayings were preserved because Paul cites them. Paul will often say, it's not me saying this, it's the Lord, i.e. Jesus, right? And I think there's enough there that you can pretty conclusively say that the earlier Gospels are working with lists of sayings that have been recorded. So all of his, like, sayings have been recorded because they happened and they were witnessed, right? Certain stories about him have been recorded, remembered. Again, Peter and James were in Jerusalem for at least 15, 20, 25 years preaching this. It would have got remembered and written down and so on. But then what are they te They're telling them what about Jesus, if I'm right? They're telling them that he was raised and that I saw him, right? And they're not telling them much more than that because there wasn't much more to it than that. There wasn't this long thing where Jesus is, like, reclining on a couch with the beloved disciple and saying, stick your fingers in me to show that I'm real or having a discourse or like. No, it's none of that. He came back. I saw him. And you kind of have to take their word for it at this point. And people have questions. How do we know they have questions? Because we know they asked Paul, and we know Paul got irritated with them and called them idiots. You know, especially as you're telling them, this, this body that Jesus came back with, that's the body you're going to get when the general resurrection happens. So they're like, and what is that exactly? And they sort of struggle to explain it a bit, because it's something pretty difficult to explain, right? And so, yeah, that bit just isn't 
and I'm trying to think of a way of saying fleshed out, because fleshed out sounds like a play on words, but yeah, it's not especially fleshed out, is it? So, that's what they have. That's like the state of play. Then Peter dies, Paul dies, James dies. The first generation die off. According to tradition, all in the 60s, right? And I say according to tradition, you know, these are much, much, much later sources. We don't get it recorded in the, in the Bible, right? So, who knows? But, like, if Paul is, he's supposedly a few years older than Jesus, so that would make him, like, 70 when he dies. Yeah, I mean, that seems completely real, right? Especially for the ancient world where people had considerably shorter life expectancies. 60s, 70s, the sort of first generation, the people who knew Jesus, die. Not long after, as I've said, there's the Jewish war. I mean, if Peter and Paul died in 65, they're dying just as the Jewish war is getting going. There's actually not even that big a time gap. Right? Now, until then, when there's still been the first generation around, you perhaps haven't needed this sort of type of narrative account that we get in Mark, because there's just, there's the people there. And even if they're not there in your particular church in Silesia or whatever, they're there, right? And you sort of, like, have their sort of indirect, maybe, letters, or they're travelling around, particularly in Paul's case, right? They die. Pretty soon afterwards, maybe even like a year or two afterwards, the Jewish war kicks off. The temple is destroyed. And if you have the expectation of an earthly apocalypse, and let's maybe just say Jesus actually did foretell the destruction of the temple. I don't think that's by any means that wild that he might have done that. This is it. This is game on. This is the end of the world. We have a last chance to get as many people into the movement as we can. What's our best way of doing that? And this guy, let's just call him Mark. I don't think his name was Mark. Let's just call him Mark. He's like, I'm going to do what I can here. The first generation are all gone. I need to write this all down. But what does he have from them? He has... Like I say, the stories from Jesus' life, the sayings. But in terms of the resurrection, people haven't told him that much because there wasn't that much to tell. They've sort of described a little bit, maybe, what the resurrected body looks like. But Mark doesn't really... He knows, as of first importance, that he was died, buried, raised. But he doesn't quite know what that looks like. So he doesn't write what it looks like. He doesn't have Jesus on screen when he's risen. He fleshes out the details of the died, buried, raised. And in many ways, I've said this before, Mark has one of the most challenging writing briefs imaginable, right? He's got to convince people that the world is ending, 
I mean, that, like I said, might have felt quite plausible at this time and this place. But it was foretold by this preacher, okay, maybe, who was executed, wait, hang on, but the, we know this is the dude because he rose from the dead. He's got to write that in a way that is convincing to people, that draws them in emotionally, that gets them invested in the narrative, and in which they believe they're going to read it and think, this happened, this is the guy, I've got to become part of this movement in order to be saved. And again, in this time, probably not saved as in go up to heaven, saved as in you'll be spared the coming destruction, right? He's got to do that not knowing the details of the most important part of the story. I think all he really has is, is died, buried, raised. And Mark does what he can with that. And to be... You've got to give him credit. Does a phenomenal job with it. He creates something that's going to last forever. He creates something that will be authentic and convincing and compelling to people at the time, and is still to us now, right? Like I say, I, I, there's nothing about my account I don't think that's supernatural or weird or like, well, there's plenty that's weird about it, but there's nothing religious really about my account, right? You've got to admit, M Mark has a tough writing gig, and he does just a phenomenal job with it. Then what happens, as we've seen, is people build upon that account, and they build out and they add bits to it, but they never really get away from Mark's account. The basic structure, the bones of the story, are what Mark came up with. And I said when I first realised this, I was kind of a bit deflated. The more I think about it, there's something kind of cool here to the fact that it was just, this bit that we know was all just invented. That what actually happened is I think you had very brief encounters where people saw something that was humanoid but not human, that was glowing and that claimed to be Jesus and that they couldn't really describe it to anyone else, but it was powerful enough that it inspired them to found the first generation. So it's that, that first set of experiences, to the extent that we can reconstruct it, that sort of just gets lost. It's there, preserved in the letters of Paul, but no one quite knows what to make of them. And then the story that continues, in many ways, isn't the story of Jesus. It's the story of Mark. And, and there you go. That's, that's what I think happened. Are there problems, challenges with that? Of course, of course. For one thing, you know, it's quite a long road to walk, right? And you have to agree with me at every point. Like I said, my entire argument is scaffolded on the dating. That's not uncontested. There's plenty of room for reasonable disagreement there. And if the dating I gave in the last episode isn't right, the whole argument collapses. If, if Luke was the first gospel written, this doesn't work, right? Then you have to grant me that Matthew, Luke, and John are all just layers on Mark. Not everyone will grant that. A lot of people think John is an independent source. I, for the life of me, do not see how. But, like, people who know more about it than me think John is an independent source. 
my argument falls apart there, too, right? You have to grant me, I think, my open-mindedness to taking seriously the types of experiences that people claim to have had. Um, and you have to grant me what I think about sources in this period. Now, I think all I can really do is sort of say that for any one of those junctures, right, for any one of those sort of decisions, I've tried to say I think the balance of evidence indicates we should take the path that I've taken. But I'm not doing more than that. It's not a solid proof, and sometimes it's a best guess, right? And if you take even one different path to the paths I've taken, you'll end up with a different answer. And people do take those paths, and they do end up with, with different answers. Another thing you could say is, well, what if we had a different set of sources? Like I say, if we didn't have Mark, could we reconstruct him? What about if we had other sources? I've said I think there's other Gospels that we don't have. If we had those, then the analysis I did would probably change. With that said, I think my argument is somewhat buttressed against what if we found a new source, because I've tried to argue, I don't think there are others. I think if we had Peter describing the resurrection in his own words, he'd sound a bit like Paul. And I don't think there was a narrative account before Mark. If those materialised in a jar in, buried in the sand somewhere in the Middle East, of course that would completely invalidate everything I'm saying. But I think for now, having recognised all of those limitations and epistemic uncertainty, I think I can put this one to bed. What actually happened at the death of Jesus? He was arrested. His disciples fled. They weren't around. He was tried under Pontius Pilate and crucified. We don't know what happened to the body. Probably nothing. Probably nothing particularly story worthy. Probably buried in a mass grave. And if it troubles you to think of that, just consider this. If this guy's message, never mind his divine status, was that important, do you need the empty tomb? in order to consider the message that important. I personally consider the message of Jesus to be a bit of a mixed bag. I think there's some very good stuff in there, some not-so-good stuff in there. And it's a bit difficult to reconstruct anyway. But aren't, are we, if, if we find, as I, I first kind of did, the thought that there isn't an empty tomb dispiriting, are we making the same mistake as the disciples in Mark, who really, really expect the Messiah to be glorious and a king and whatever, not to end up on a cross. Do we need the power and glory to see moral truth? I'd put that challenge. People will sometimes say if there is no empty tomb, the faith is in vain. Well, Maybe it isn't, but that's for Christians to decide, and they may well just reject everything I've said, certainly.
But there was no empty tomb. Jesus was buried. The disciples fled. And as far as the facts of the death go, that's about it. Except, sometime afterwards, the disciples, in a state of trauma, in a state of heightened religious expectation, and in a world where people regularly did interact with penumas, with demons, with angels, in a world where people did believe in resurrection, they have encounters. These are very difficult for us to reconstruct, but I don't think we have to think that they're fake, and I think the balance of evidence is that they weren't. These encounters are probably quite brief, but they are real to them. Are they real in some literal scientific sense? Well, in the sense that they are actually seeing these things, yes. Were they actually beings from another world? No. But were they actually seeing them? Yes. And they become convinced of this. And they're seeing the same things. The same thing. And so they go back to Jerusalem and they start this movement. Or they continue this movement. Some guy named Paul, young, upstart, rising beyond his years in the church, starts persecuting them. But in doing it, he encounters the ideas, and these ideas are contagious, and he sees it too. We know his story. We will eventually get the only account of the real resurrection, as it were, the sort of historic resurrection from Paul. If we didn't have Paul, this would be completely lost to history. I think he gives us just enough just enough to sketch out what might have happened. And then, like I say, in the generation after the leaders die, it falls to some unknown nameless scribe to write the document that will catapult this movement into world history, and that's Mark. Mark leaves out more than we might think, but then that gets filled in. Luke later on will clarify. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a physical body. It's not anything weird. He ascended to heaven. The stuff that we sort of know. These are just sort of later layers on Mark. But it's Mark who comes up with the story that we all know. And so there is a story to the resurrection. And I think it's kind of interesting. And I think to appreciate it, all you have to do is engage with the earliest documents. Unencumbered by the later stories, and engage with them without any prejudice or snobbery about the types of experiences that human beings can have, I think it certainly did have, and still do to this day. But the story of the resurrection, as we know it, isn't that story. And it's not the story of the historical Jesus, nor is it even the story of the followers who were with him in his life. It's the story of someone whose name we do not know. Someone whose name we will never know. Who finds himself, who takes upon himself a seemingly impossible task, in seemingly impossible circumstances, and whose creativity and yes, genius changes the world. And make, of you, make what you will of that. I think that's the historical reality. That the story of the resurrection as we know it 
is not the story of the historical Jesus. It's the story of a nameless individual who we have come to call Mark. <laughs>